Welcome back to the New York Gun Guys podcast. My name is Taylor. Guys, be sure to check us out. Facebook, Instagram, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you find podcasts from. Podbean, that's a real popular one for people who don't use Android or Apple and they want an alternative for their podcast. Um, it's been a little while since we've um, been on the show. Life's been a little crazy, but I promise you this will be a very, very good show. Um, today I have a very special guest on. I've been trying to have a lot more guests on, which I know is very hard, um, but I try to find people with substance. And today I'm going to be talking with Mr. Isaac Ritchie, who actually is suing New York State. Um, one of our last guests we had on was uh, Mr. Kamenchek. He was a lawyer who was suing Nassau County. Mr. Ritchie here is suing New York State. Um, for the injustices that he has has been unduly granted upon him. So, um, Isaac, Mr. Ritchie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. Um, I I love being on these kinds of podcasts just so I can kind of spread the message and let people know what's going on in New York. So uh, thank you so much for their, uh, having me on, and I, I really appreciate it. Of course, of course. So we um, – just a little background. So I'm, I'm going to start how I found you. So – um, I saw you on the New York gun subreddit and, um, I saw your story and kind of what you were going through. And I reached out on a, on a message and we started talking and, um, we've been talking for a little bit behind the scenes. Um, but now things are actually, uh, well, they've been serious, but in terms of actually taking action, now things are moving along. So tell us your story, Mr. Richie, tell you, tell us what got you to this point to where you are suing New York state. So, for anyone who's listening, I'm I'm relatively young, as you can hear. I'm I'm 23 years old, going on 24, and I joined the army when I was I signed up when I was 17. I had a parent permission and all that stuff, and I left right as I turned 18. If I remember correctly, my uh, I think I turned 18 while I was in basic training, mm-hmm. or right when I got out. Anyways, um, so while I was in I Xperia, I was stationed up in uh, New York, and that's kind of where all this all started. Are you and originally from I, New York? No, I'm originally from Oregon. Okay. And I was I was born and raised in Oregon. I was uh, born and raised uh, very conservative for for being the West Coast. I I lived in a, a a town called Eugene, which is where the home of the Oregon Ducks are. For anyone who watches college football, um, that's where I was born and raised. And growing up, you know, I was around firearms all my life, hunting, fishing. I used to go on hike. It's Oregon's very outdoorsy. I spent my whole childhood and teenage years shooting guns in the woods and hunting and fishing and hiking and all that kind of stuff, and up until I left, and Uncle Sam took me to uh, New York. Not the best place um, to bring you, I suppose, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what? Upstate New York, if I if I put aside the politics, I put aside what the, what the state did, did to me, but if I think about the physical state, it's really gorgeous up it there, is. man. It is. You know, it's, it's beautiful. And I did all kinds of training up there, so I got to see all kinds of the, 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 beautiful, uh, the beautiful mountains or and it's just it's it's gorgeous it's beautiful up there it's just the winter's brutal and yes. it's just not a fun place to live for the majority of the year but in the summer is very nice <laughs> now, what did you do in the army specifically i was in the infantry so okay. i um i spent obviously from my childhood i was around firearms all my life then i joined the infantry and as you can imagine the majority of my day was spent around firearms and you know i i didn't deploy i didn't do any crazy crazy crap you know i'm no ranger or anything like that nothing my stint in the military was very, very boring. You know, I didn't do anything. I spent my whole time in drum. and um, But what ended up kind of bringing me to the situation that I'm in now was uh, 
my first year that I was in the unit that I was with, and I won't discuss the unit because I don't want, you know, I don't want anybody from the unit to figure out who I am and try to talk crap about me or something like that. Uh, the unit that I was with was known to be a very, very toxic unit, at least from what I was told. And uh, it kind of turned out to be really true. Uh, the unit was, the, the first year was pretty brutal. Uh, there was a lot of hazing, a lot of bullying to all of the new guys. Uh, the first year we had, we had my first year there, we had a six, we had, I want to say four suicide attempts, uh, one successful, uh, one successful suicide attempt. And it was, everyone knew the sergeant that was responsible for it. Everybody knew why this soldier committed suicide and everybody is private Ellis was his name. And he, um, he hung himself in his barracks room because of the treatment that he uh, sustained when he uh, when he um, got to the unit. I, this was this was this was after my first year, after I had endured and you know got got past that first lump of being hazed. And he was he was the, one of the new guys that came through, and he you know he he couldn't handle it. I don't know. Yeah. He wasn't close to him, so I don't. I'm not even going to try to pretend like I was. I don't. He probably had something else going on. I'm not really sure. Yeah, it's still but, tragic, nonetheless. Yes, exactly. And the whole unit knew the, the, it was a the elephant in the room was that it was the sergeants and the people and the, the leadership responsible for it. And uh, so, you know, that kind of sets the stage in terms of uh, understanding the kind of environment that I was in. Okay. And the kind of uh, just the toxic environment that I was in. And uh, long story, or not long story short, but. What ended up happening was my I grew up in a pretty interesting household where my grandparents were primarily my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother was I had a mother she was around, but she wasn't emotionally around or or monetarily around. It was mostly my grandparents, and they kind of provided for me. And so they were growing up where my grand my, my dad and and my mom. Okay. And my at the time my first year in my grandmother uh, diabetes uh, took her life. Mm. And um, I was going through a little bit of I was I was my grandma had I I really can't remember if it was before or after or during but I want to say it was during during the time of the hazing and the bullying my grandmother was sick and I knew she was at this point it it advanced past just her kind of having really severe diabetes and it advanced to the point of yeah she's gonna die pretty much any minute now. Mm. And so I was kind of going through that at the time, knowing that my mother figure, you know, at, at such a young age, my essentially my mother figure was going to be dying relatively soon. Um, I had a a significant other that I was seeing, and uh, she had broken up with me after uh, right as I got to that unit. And so I had a recent breakup. My mother figure was dying, and I was being hazed and bullied every single day. Eesh. And sorry you uh, had to endure that. Yeah, it 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 changed me. I definitely know it it you know they it, I believe that there is a healthy especially in the infantry there's a healthy amount of of stress from your peers is what I'll call it that uh everybody will will go through but you know the stuff that they did to us was and it was it wasn't physical abuse. I wasn't being punched or you know not necessarily. It wasn't. It was. It was mental abuse. Okay. It was more so. Uh, any any military members that were involved knows what it means to get smoked and stuff like that. And that's normal. You know, getting smoked is 
when your superior forces you to do physical activities and you know until you throw up kind of thing okay and uh there's an extent where that's okay you know if 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 I don't know, let's say you're going to go out to a field training exercise and it's going to be a nighttime training exercise and you forget your nods or your night vision goggles. You know, you that is a, a, that is a fuck up on your end and, you mm-hmm. know, you're going to – that is something that would make sense to punish somebody for so right. they don't learn from – so they can learn from that mistake. And this is mostly an infantry thing. I cannot speak about any other bases. I can't speak about any other units. This okay. is just my unit. Okay. And I want to put that disclaimer out there so that – you know, no real turbocharged vet tries to come out and scream about how, you know, I'm talking BS or something like that. Right. It's just my unit. I don't know. The military is very much a, uh, what do you want to call it? It's very much a, a, a experience may vary. <laughs> yeah. No, I could see that. And, you know, I, I've never served in the military. I'm not a veteran or anything. And um, kind of what you're describing, and not to make light of it, but kind of reminds me of the first half of Full Metal Jacket, where mm-hmm. it's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of, you would say, abuse, and a lot of, you would say, um, stress, and a lot of, um, you know, it, it was a mixture of environment and the person um, that kind exactly. of caused the outcome of Private, you know, Pile, I guess you could say. But, and y- yeah. The... It's very similar, you know, in, with with pile, if minus yeah. the physical abuse. Yeah. In the sense well, that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's one of those things where, you know, here's a you know I mentioned the nods and how that's something yeah. that would make sense for you to mess up, but you know it it, it it was like, I'm brand new to the unit. This is my first probably within my first thirty days. I'm brand new to my unit. I it's the weekend, and general rule of thumb is, if you're on the weekend, it's your day off. Sergeants are not supposed to be messing with you unless you have a detail that day. Unless you got something that you are specifically been told during the week that you, you know, hey, we need you to come do X and Y. If you have the day off, they're supposed to leave you alone. Okay. And uh, that doesn't happen for the new guys. They um, they'll come knocking on your door at a random nights of the day, and they'll ask you questions that you they know you will not know the answer to. For example, I'm brand new to the unit, and they'll come up and they'll be like, hey, so who's second platoon first squad's squad leader? Of course, I'm not going to know that. I've been there for 25 days. And they'll come knock on your door, and if you don't get it wrong, they'll make you do sprints up and down the hallway until you vomit, hmm. until you, you physically can't do it anymore. Okay. Or they'll, you know, or they'll, and they and they'll do that every single, they'll do things like that every single day for a year straight. Now, do you think, just to kind of interrupt, do you think that's more of the, not necessarily the position of leadership, but the actual person that was in leadership that like you said experience may vary it's not necessarily like because they are a sergeant they're doing this it's this individual person in that position is that kind of more of what you're you're getting at or is it uh, just a general problem with leadership that you experienced at my unit it was a general leadership problem for sure my you my unit in particular from what I observed, and again, I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert in leadership right, styles. Right. Don't get me wrong, but the people that I saw that were getting, because you, you have, you have typical promotions, which is just time and grade. So you know, you're a private, you will become a private first class. You don't have to do anything, and then from a private first class, you'll go to specialist, and then from specialist to, to corporal, that's an internal promotion that's only done by your company leaders that, that, that basically they'll, they'll pull these specialists together, see who's smart, see who seems like they're good leadership type, and they'll make them a corporal. Okay. Then from, or if you're really high speed, you can go from specialist to, which is an E4 
straight to E5, which is sergeant. And at that point, but you have to go through basic leadership course. There's courses that you have to do, and there's there's ways that they can that the unit themselves can kind of weed out the people that clearly shouldn't be a sergeant yet. And my unit didn't really care. They were promoting people that clearly they were people that as specialists, which is not a high rank, they were they were promoting they were promoting specialists that were already abusing their higher rank as a specialist and promoting them into higher leadership positions and allowing them to have more power. Why do you think they were doing that in your opinion? Incompetence. Okay. I think um, the higher the higher leadership the problem and this I I would argue is is military wide. Uh, the problem with the way that the military handles leadership and the reason why the army I I can't speak for the other branches but for the army in general they have a really, really bad toxic leadership problem. It's the reason why they're hemorrhaging people. It's the reason why everyone's getting out. It's the reason nobody, people like me, don't re-enlist. Um, it's very common, so I can easily say that this is um, this is army and army-wide problem. Um, the army seems to not understand that you don't promote people to leadership positions because they are good at running or because they're good at doing push-ups, or because they're good at doing, I don't know, whatever other stupid physical activity that the Army requires for their PT test. Okay. That, that is kind of what the Army and Army leadership seems to put forward rather than competence, rather than, you know, there were, there were plenty of guys that I knew in the Army, the guys that helped me when I was going through what I was going through, who were great people. They would have been great leaders. They would have made good squad leaders, good team leaders. They would have made awesome leaders. And they were completely skipped over, but they were given it to, I don't know, you know, specialist dickhead who can run a six-minute mile. Okay. Is it because it looks good on paper? For example, like yes. somebody's character might not show through on paper, but if there's a metric that you could measure them with like a certain distance amount of push-ups whatever that it shows that on paper they might be a better candidate but not necessarily character wise is that kind of exactly okay. that's exactly what it is they they think they equate the idea of your physical fitness i i i want to say the mentality that they have is if you have good pt scores that means you do good that means you work out mm, well and you try which means yeah. you're disciplined okay but that's not the, you know, that's right. and anyone with common sense knows that some people are just more physically stronger and physically able than others. And that doesn't make them more or less better leaders. Right. Right. There's plenty of guys that I know who are like, I'm, I'm a small guy. I'm, I'm five foot nine. I'm 160 pounds. I'm not a big guy, but there's plenty of dudes that I know that can, you know, I don't know. They're about maybe a little bit taller than me that can bench throw around 300 pound bench press. Right. But those guys couldn't figure out how to use a you know, they wouldn't be able to figure out what to do with a, a phone if you gave it to them. <laughs> These are guys that, you know, you, if you gave them a basic algebra question, they, they would their heads would blow off. Okay. Yeah, people have their different strong suits, I guess you can say. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay, so obviously, so the, where you are at in the story is now you're there, you're new, um, you're seeing that the leadership is very toxic, very um, ineffective, very uh, just not competent. So, so what, what's next? What happens? So at that point, 
I, I kind of gave you a little bit of a background in yes. terms of my mother was passing away and I was going through the kind of little bit of that breakup and then I was being bullied and hazed. And at that point I was experiencing, you know, I, I had, you know, bouts of depression when my first girlfriend broke up with me in high school, uh-huh. but this was different. This was significantly different and I could tell. And the thing about, the thing about depression, especially when it gets to that degree is the things that you're thinking don't make any sense. They don't make logical sense. The things that you're the thing the things going through your head, the things that you're thinking about, they don't they like they don't make sense, but to you they make sense. I don't know why, but that's something that's very common. I'm I'm very big in the mental health world and I, I love I'm I'm very passionate about it. And that's something that's very common amongst people that have dealt with very severe depression, is it's like there's a it's it's almost like there's a voice in their head that's telling them that the world is shit. You're worthless. The people around you hate yeah, you. It's like intrusive you know, thoughts. Um, exactly. Things like that. Exactly. It's and it's 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 things that don't make sense when you break when you think about it logically, but your brain's not thinking about it logically. Right. And that was how I knew things were different. You know, like when I was in high school and I you know I felt sad or whatever. That's hormonal changes yeah. in your body and high school BS. You, you know high school BS. None of it matters. <laughs> yeah. No, you know. It doesn't. And. I could just tell. So I've dealt with it in the past, you know, a little bit being sad because my girlfriend broke up with me. I knew what it was like to be sad, but this was different. And I, I dealt with it for a while, and it wasn't until my grandmother passed away that, um, or not necessarily, it wasn't that she was she had passed away at that point. But I'd, I'd received the phone call from uh, the Red Cross, and in order for you to get emergency leave in the army, you, they, you have to have a family member contact the Red Cross. Hmm. And then the Red Cross contacts your company commander, and then it becomes they legally they're federally bounded to give you leave at that point. Oh, okay. And so that's how the emergency leave works when there's a family death or a family illness that's very serious. And at that point, I had received word that like, hey, your your grandma, your your mom, I'll just call her mom for simple for simplicity's sake. I got you. Your mother is is she doesn't got much time left, and they were saying probably gonna she'll probably be gone within the next two or three weeks. And so at that point, um, she, she lived longer than those two or three weeks. But, uh, you know, at the time I was thinking, you know, I, I, I was, I, I was already at a low point and now my mother was dying. They're a hundred percent dying. And I don't necessarily remember the preceding this. I don't remember what I was doing or I know it was an ordinary day. And I was talking to one of my best friends who lives in Iowa and I was kind of reaching out to him a little bit and just kind of telling him, you know, like what was going on mentally that I wasn't I wasn't in a good headspace right, and right. that I was feeling really depressed. And I wasn't sure what, what I don't know. I wasn't sure what I was feeling, why I was feeling these ways. I was reaching out. And um, I, that's what I think. That's how the morning started. And towards the very end of the day, the, the kind of real depressive suicidal thoughts just started to get worse and worse and worse until I was like, I need to go speak to somebody. It was end of the day. At very end of the day, I reached out to my team leader, who was somebody that I trusted. He was, uh, his name was Woods. He was very, he's a guy I really trusted him. He was, he was, he would, wasn't partaking in the bullying and the hazing. Mm-hmm. And this was, I can't, I want to say this was probably after this, how would have been, no, this would have been before. Uh, this is before things, things had calmed down at this point in terms of the hazing and bullying, but they were okay. still there. 
Um, but it wasn't it wasn't nearly as bad as like my first six months, but it was still there. And Woods was one of the people that didn't partake. And he thought it was BS. And so he was someone I quickly kind of came to bond with. And when he became my team leader, I was really happy because I finally had somebody that wasn't a piece of shit presiding me. Mm-hmm. And so I contacted him and I just said, hey, man, I need to talk to you. Like I've got, you know, I just I just I just need to talk to somebody right now. Right. And so he's like, yeah, man, I'm in my barracks room. And he was a he was a, a floor above me. And he said, yeah, just go ahead and come knock and we can talk. And so I, I went over up the stairs and I went to go speak with uh, my buddy Woods. But what little did I know was the buddy that I, that I talked about earlier, my buddy in Iowa, he was concerned about my well-being and he had called the local military police to conduct a welfare check on me. Mm, okay. And so I'm talking, I have no idea this is going on. I had no idea this was happening. I had no idea that my friend was that concerned about me. And I was talking to my buddy Woods, and I was just, you know, telling him the same thing that I was explaining to my buddy Jacob. You know, just I'm tired of being treated like this, X and Y, and I'm not right. feeling good. I'm, I've got I've got these suicidal ideations in my head. Like I need I just need someone to talk to to tell me that everything's going to be okay. Right, right. And just a support. And he, you know, he was he did great. He talked to me, and he had never, I don't think he'd ever dealt with something like that before. And so he just did his best to just kind of talk to me and let me know, like, you know, we'll we'll get this fixed. You know, we'll try to stop this. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, he was there for me. And it wasn't, it was probably about 15 minutes of me talking to him that I, I, I had a weird feeling in my gut that just like something, something didn't feel right in the air. Mm-hmm. Something was just like, something was wrong. And that's when I heard hand, like, the sound of what sounded like handcuffs and, and chains and, and gear coming up the stairs. And it was, but it wasn't the gear that I'm used to hearing. And so I opened up the door and that's when I saw there was two, two military police officers coming down the hallway. And in the military, they have a CQ desk. It's called uh, charge of quarters okay. at all barracks. And there are two NCO, a sergeant of some form and a, and a private or a lower an, uh, under enlisted, lower enlisted basically stays up for 24 hours in the barracks to just make sure nothing goes wrong. Okay. And uh, that's how the military police were able to kind of figure out where I was because they the CQ was able to kind of dictate, saw me go up the stairs, stuff like that. Right. So I step outside with Woods and the military police show up and there was a there was two guys. Um, one was a African-American male. The other guy was a big, tall, white guy. And the tall, white guy was the sergeant. And he... Uh, He's talking to me, and he basically just says, hey, man, like we got a call from a friend who um, said that he was concerned about your well-being. We tried knocking your door. You weren't there. And then your CQ said you were up here. We just wanted to come check on you and, and, and see what was going on. And at that point, I, I just completely broke down. Mm-hmm. And I just told him everything that was going on and just that, you know, like I, I can't deal with it anymore. I've got all this shit going on in my life. Nothing seems to be working well. Yada, 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 yada. And – I said in previous podcasts that it was the military police that told me, I think you should go to the hospital, but I, I reached out to Woods recently, and he was the one who said it. Mm, okay. So anyone who's listening from other podcasts or who have heard mine, they'll the, I, I recant that statement. Okay. Um, well, still anyways, regardless, you, you went to go get uh, – you went to the hospital. Yeah, so I Woods basically just said, yeah, man, the, the military police offered to said, hey, man, like – you know, we've got a, there's a really good mental health program over in the hospital in uh, Watertown, New York. And he just said that, uh, you know, 
it's not what you think. Because in my head, I was thinking it was going to be like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm. <laughs> and so I was Somebody's like, I want nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, I want, I don't want anything to do with that. Right. And that's basically what I told him. And he said, hey, man, like, it's nothing like that. And he explained that he's brought guys there before and that they've come out. and It's, it's a good experience for them. And he thinks it'll just be a good break. Okay. Get away from all of this, separate, and just take a break. And that's when Woods, you know, said, yeah, I, I really think it would be good. And then I told them, I said, all right, you know, let's go. Uh, I, I think I think if it's going to be as helpful as you say, and I need the help right now, let's go. Mm-hmm. And so they walked with me down to their squad car. And before they, they, they stopped me and they said, hey, you're not under arrest. You're not being detained. But we have to put you in cuffs because it's company SOP. In order for you to be in the back of the cop car, we have to put you in cuffs. It's just, you're not under arrest. You're not being detained. It's part of the SOP. And so I said, yeah, you're fine. Go ahead. And they put me in cuffs, put me in the back of the car, drove me to the hospital. And there's a reason I'm, there's a reason I'm wording it this way. And when I got to the hospital, we exited the squad car. They uncuffed me immediately. One cop, one of them stayed inside. The other came in with me. Mm-hmm. And in other podcasts, I stated that no one came in with me. That is, that is wrong. I figured that out from, um, I believe it was the medical record, unless they lied on the medical record, hmm. which is totally possible. Um, he walked in with me, and he had to sign some paperwork, and, and then he left, and he said, good luck, and left. And that was, that was I went to the ER, and they, they triaged me, and they, I spent probably a couple hours inside of this little room. And they came in, and I believe it was a nurse, it could have been a CNA, came in and, and said, hey, so, you know, we think that you might be benefit by going up on the floor. And we just wanted to come here, and we wanted to talk to you and see if that was something that you'd be willing to do. And I told them, yes, yeah, I, I, that's why I want to be. I, want, I, I came here because I wanted help. Right. So I, I, I want to be on the floor. And so he said, great. And then they processed me, brought me up to the floor, and I spent – five six days there it was great it was it was it was a really good experience good it the 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 psychiatrists and the doctors that were in the hospital were very caring they were very kind they um there were the majority of that unit was military the guys that were in there with me like 90 percent of them were guys from fort drum Mm. um so they were all most of them were in kind of similar situations as me where Maybe they were being bullied, or maybe they whatever it was. They were, you know, it was it was nice to be, not feel alone. If that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, so I spent some time there, and I didn't fight anybody. There wasn't any. I, I did exactly what they told me to do, and then at the very end, they discharged me. They said I was I and, I, and at that point, what I didn't know was that they admitted me under um, New York Mental Health Law nine point three nine. And 9.39 is the statute under the SAFE Act that basically, well, the mental health law in general under the SAFE Act, it governs all laws surrounding involuntary, voluntary, or informal patients that are brought to hospitals for uh, mental health purposes. It governs which hospitals can do it, which hospitals can't do it. It has, you know, all kinds of statutes in there. And uh, I was brought there. They placed me on a 9.39 emergency observation hold. I don't know why. I have no idea why they placed me under that hold because I explicitly told them that I wanted to be there. Okay. But they did. And for anybody who's listening, uh, we've talked about it in the past, but 
generally speaking, um, like when you go, this you'll get into this a little, little bit later, but just so that way it's important now to know this. When you go to buy a gun, um, federally speaking, you can't be, quote, adjudicated as a mental defective or committed to a mental, mental institution. Uh, that's a question on the next check, the 4473. In uh, Isaac's case here, he's saying, and he's specifically stating this, that he was not um, committed. It was voluntary. And there's a very big distinction in the law between somebody who's involuntarily and voluntarily uh, committed to some sort of mental health or rehabilitation program. And the SAFE Act um, has provisions in that for reporting to the state. Yes. Now, another very, very important thing, too, involving um, involuntary commitments is this is um, 18, United States, 18 United States Code 922, subsection G, subsection 4. This specific subsection talks about the whole committed to a mental institution. Hospitals do count. Yes. And um, however... Under the affirmative defenses of this law, it specifically states that if a person was brought to a hospital under observation, if they were placed for if they were brought to a hospital and placed on an observation hold or for observation purposes only in regards to mental health, it does not qualify as an involuntary commitment. That's very important to note as we go forward okay. for anybody listening. It's very important. And they specifically play I'm if I had to guess. The reason why 18 United States Code 922 G4 exists is because anybody can be brought into a hospital for observation purposes. And if you're placed, in, at least in the state of Oregon, New York, I know a little bit about because I've done a lot of studying. But New Oregon, I'm familiar with these kinds of commitments because after I was discharged from the military, I worked in a hospital as security in the mental health wing for a year. So I got to see people who were involuntarily committed, people who were brought in voluntarily. I got to watch all of this. Okay. And um, they – anybody if you, you, anybody can be brought in for observation purposes. For example, let's say you were in Oregon. Again, this is just Oregon. Let's say you were in downtown Eugene and you had a little bit too much to drink. And you were, I don't know, stumbling all over the sidewalks or whatever the hell. And there was a local police officer who saw you there and decided this guy's not safe to be just wandering the streets drunk. You might get it by a car, whatever it is. They can bring you to the hospital and you will be placed under an observation hold. Hmm. And the purpose of that observation hold is just to make sure that you're sober and for them to potentially call somebody to come pick you up. Okay, so it's but kind they of like don't, a drunk tank, but in a hospital setting. Yes, exactly. And they can do that if you're high on drugs as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. those those kinds of holds in Oregon, it would make no sense to place to ban somebody's right to bear arms because they were drunk and they got a little bit too drunk one night. Right, and, and I, I would imagine where the comes from. Exactly, and that's okay. what I would imagine why they added that kind of firm, affirmative defense in there is so that people who are brought in for observational purposes only aren't barred from owning guns for the rest of their life. Better example is the red flag laws. Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, if you know, if somebody, if or I, in Oregon they don't really have red flag laws, but in Oregon, you know, you could. There would be reason to argue that if, let's say, somebody was concerned about your well-being, like me, but let's say it was. Let's say they're. Let's say they brought you to the hospital anyways. 
even though you weren't suicidal and it was a, maybe it was false, maybe somebody misunderstood your words and you're placed under observation, but you weren't suicidal, would it make sense to ban a person like that from owning guns? No, and of no. course, nobody ever lies to get people in trouble, especially if there's a romance or a broken up romance going on. And that's <laughs> that's a big thing with red flag laws. It's you know, I I understand the spirit of the law. I really do. I I you know, I get why it's there and I get the intent of it. But at what point does it cross a person's due process? Does it stomp on their rights? Does it is it ripe for abuse at certain points? So. That's really kind of what it what, what a lot of these red flag laws boil down to. Where does it? Where's the line? Um, exactly. So okay, so um, you're in this hospital. It's going good. Things are going well. You're feeling better. Um, so what happens next? So I get discharged from the hospital about five or six days later, and I go back to the infantry. Now, anybody who's brought anyone who has those kinds of mental health problems, there's like a two week period where they call it a profile, and that can be a medical profile. That can be any kind of profile. Uh-huh. And the idea is that you're you're not allowed to do X and Y because of X and Y. An example would be, let's say you went into sick call in the morning because you had the, you had nausea, uh-huh. and then they, turned, they did a flu test on you and you had the flu. They would give you a profile that says, you know, this person is not allowed to be in contact with others. This person is supposed to be sitting at home or in his barracks room. He's supposed to be left alone. That's what a profile is. There, there's also injuries. You know, if you tear your rotator cuff or whatever, mm-hmm. you'll be placed on a profile to stop you from to stop people from making you do things that would otherwise harm whatever's going on. Okay. So for they they have mental health profiles. So for like two weeks, I couldn't touch a gun. Now nobody fucking follows that because I'm in the infantry and that's my job. So I still. <laughs> Yeah, you know that would defeat the purpose of me. But I couldn't do anything. Right. So I was still around firearms. I just wasn't around loaded firearms. So I worked closely with the. I was worked closely with the armorer, and that was the person that distributes the weapons and the firearms, the yeah. ammo and stuff like yeah. that. I worked closely with him in the armory. And after my hospitalization, I was still helping the armor. I was still around guns, still around firearms, and um, I just you know, for two weeks, I just couldn't. I couldn't be around the ammo essentially. Okay. And then two weeks later, it's back to normal. I'm back out in the field. I want to say a month, maybe two or three months after my hospitalization, I was out doing field tra- I I did shotgun breacher course a couple, like maybe a month after my hospitalization, oh, nice. where I was where I was learning how to shoot do- shoot down doors with 12 gauge shotguns. I went through the AT4 rocket launcher course. So it was I, because that, that was the guy. That was what I. That must. That was fun. what I carried. It was. So you know, I, I was shooting. <laughs> I bet. I was shooting rocket launchers, and I, I did grenade throw. I was throwing grenades. I was, you know, I was doing shotgun breacher course. I was training. Yeah. I was around, you know, the purpose of me telling that is I was around firearms all the way until I got out about a year later. Right. If you were a serious danger to yourself or others, they wouldn't hand you a fucking rocket launcher. Like <laughs> exactly, exactly. I did like it's it's I I I just had this distinct memory of a few months later. Uh, literally, like learning how to shoot the AT4 and shooting it at, at shooting it at a tank. <laughs> nice. Around the same guys, around the same guys, and this is a fake tank, obviously. Yeah. But this is around the same guys that bullied and hazed me. Mm. So, like, they at this point, after my hospitalization, the hazing stopped completely. Oh, good. And all the bullying stopped. It, it, it continued for the new guys, but it stopped for me. And I think that was because people realized that it was really taking its toll on me, and they stopped. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know. But it stopped, and I was glad for that. And uh, 
anyways, about a year later, I get out of the army, honorable discharge, and um, that's a notable thing I, too. Because if you had issues or anything was wrong, you wouldn't be. It would be other than honorable or dis exactly or whatever. Exactly. So I get out and I drive back to Oregon. I drive drove from New York to Oregon. Nice. Because I had two dogs at the time. It was awesome drive, and um, I kind of get myself established in Eugene. And I want to say it was would have would have been within the year that I that I got back to my hometown. I was like, you know what, you know, I I stole all of my guns before I joined the military because it's a pain in the ass to have a gun on the military base. Oh yeah. Yeah, you have to keep them Massive. locked up with the armorer. You can't exactly. have them with you. Yeah, I, I had some friends that were stationed up at Drum. They they told me about that. Exactly. So I I was I just I I kept my AR. That's the only I sold my handguns, sold my shotguns, and my AR is the only thing I kept. And I gave it to my my grandpa and I said, keep this, put it in a safe. Yeah. I swear to God, if you lose this thing or sell it, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hadn't keep it for safekeeping, so I, right. I go back and I I um I what was it? I didn't bother bringing grabbing my rifle because it just wasn't on my mind. My grandpa still had it. I just I just got back to Oregon, so I was like, the last thing on my mind was going to go purchase a gun. I had to get my shit in order. Right. And probably six months later, that's when I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna um I'm gonna go ahead and I want to get back into hunting and all that stuff. So I'm gonna go ahead and get myself a nice hunting shotgun because I want to go hunt some ducks. And I also wanted it for home defense as well because Eugene, Oregon's got a big crime problem. Mm, yeah, a lot of and, places uh, out there do. Portland yeah, it's bad. And, exactly. Yeah. Eugene is basically Portland light. Oh, God. Sorry to hear that. And yeah, that's why I left. <laughs> I don't blame um, you. So I go, to, I go to a gun, I go to a shop, and Oregon at the time, something a lot of people i don't think a lot of people know is oregon had had very very lax gun laws for a very long time yeah very relaxed for compared compare comparing to it to washington to california oh yeah very very relaxed there's no registry there's no permitting system it's you literally it's just like how it should be you go in you you, you go you go through an x check you buy a gun that's all it is no wait period none of that dumb bullshit nothing different just, for pistols either um, well, you have to be 21 on a pistol, but that's federal. Well, you can purchase one below. You can possess, but you can't purchase. Right, right. But, um, no, no, there was, there's no, I mean, there's a, I, there, it's not a, it's not a constitutional carry state. So you, so if you want to steal carry, you have to, uh, you have to go through a CCW course. Okay. But to purchase but the, one, but you can like just a, go in and yeah. buy it the yep. same as a, a long arm. So exactly. You just wow, go in nice. and you purchase it. Must be and nice. you can open carry it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oof. And so, let's go, ahead, go ahead. No, I was gonna say that that sounds great. <laughs> I wish it was like yeah, that it, here. It, it's changed now. Now yeah. that measure one fourteen oh, passed. God, that was an abomination. That's a whole other topic. I am, but but at the time, you know, it was great. It was normal. It's, right. But right. This was right during COVID, so the uh, background check took a long ass time. Or the only thing Oregon does differently is I think New York does this too. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm not really sure, but Oregon has its own. I think it's called the FICS, the FIX, something like that. It's a background check that the the state police conduct on you, and it's I don't understand the purpose of it. It's literally the same thing as a normal next check. Now New York does that, or they're going to do it. They passed a law that says that the state police will run a background check. The whole reasoning behind it is that um, I agree with it to some extent, but I disagree with it mostly uh, just because it's another layer of 
uh, able to make a registry out of. But basically, their their argument was that states don't uh, report. Sometimes there's a disconnect between federal law and state law. Uh, not federal law, states like federal and state. Uh, municipalities sharing information. So something that's known on a state level might not be known on a federal level. And therefore, um, if we run our own internal background check in the state, we would know better than the feds, let's just say. Um, But in my opinion, that's ripe for a registry because the state then knows who's buying and selling all the guns. So, (laughs) you know, it just... It, the, the federal system, you're not supposed to keep a record. Obviously, there is with the Knicks, and they could search it if need be. But with the state, they don't have the same prohibition as um, not keeping a registry as the feds do. That makes sense. That so makes they, sense. they started doing that, that now here. I, like I said, I do get it on a level of that if the state knows something that the feds don't, of course, I don't want somebody who's a dangerous person to get be able to get a gun. But at the same time, it's ripe for, hey, we now know who buys all the guns, who has this gun, who has this gun. Now in New York, they also do with ammunition. Um, you have to give them Whoa. your information. Yeah, they just started doing this. You have to give them your information, your everything that's on your driver's license and your occupation to buy ammunition. And they mark that down along with the make of the ammunition, the caliber and the quantity what and the an applicable fuck? lot number. Yeah, they just passed that in New York. So a lot of people now are just to buy a box of 22, you have to um, you have to give your information. That is insane. Yep, yep. And a lot of people now are just choosing not to buy ammunition in New York. And it's very, it's hurting a lot of local businesses. And they're putting a lot of pressure on FFLs with new laws with um, safe. Uh, for example, there's a, there's a law that's out now with FFLs. You have to have a certain kind of security system with a certain amount of backup and certain amount of gun safe and storage. And they're, they're really going after now everything but the guns. So they got the gun control passed in New York. But now they're going after the retailers, the sellers, how you can buy a gun. It's like the old Chris Rock bit. You know, if you make every bullet $5,000, people would think twice about shooting one another. It's kind of the same thing. Um, So Oregon, you know, with the whole Measure 114, it's very nutty. And it was done in a very wrong way. If I remember remember correctly, just getting a little off track here, there wasn't even a provision in Oregon um, to when it goes into effect Basically, everyone would be a criminal, if I remember some, something along those lines. Yep, yep, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the biggest thing about Measure 114 that didn't make any goddamn sense was that the state police do the, the Oregon State Police is not very large. Right. They don't have a lot of people. Oregon is not nowhere near as large population wise, nowhere near as big as, you know, New York, Texas here in Dallas. Oh, yeah. They don't have the they don't have the the capability to be able to facilitate Measure 114's requirements, which were, you know, the whole you have to go through some sort of government mandated safety course and all yep. this bullshit. They're trying that. In they New they, York they too don't. Now. <laughs> they don't have the the Oregon State Police don't have the don't they don't have the infrastructure right. nor the people to be able to handle that. So in my opinion, what I think that was, well, a I a lot of my friends back in Oregon, the way how they got that shit to pass it was a ballot was, measure. Yes, the yeah. ballot measure. They didn't put a lot of information on the ballot. Nobody was talking about it. They didn't. They just described it essentially as just like a, like a, like a. They they framed it as just like a, a safe right. a way they to. They always do that. To oh, sa- save the children act. Yeah, save yeah, the children act. Bullshit like that. You're not against. And you're not for the save the children act. Oh, you must be exactly. a raving criminal lunatic. Yeah. And they and that's what they did on these ballot measures was they you know they 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 framed it as if it was something that it really wasn't. 
And so I genuinely think what happened was that the majority of these biggest – the thing that doesn't make any goddamn sense to me, especially with Portland, is that these, these people, they're ACAB. These, these are people that are all about <laughs> all cap cops are, are bastards. Yeah. They're all evil. But you want to give the police the authority to, to, to decide whether or not you can and cannot defend yourself? Well, it's something that I've always I'm, said on the show in the past is that, ironically, the people who, who preach or say that they're the most, quote, marginalized are the people that want to give the government the most control. You know, people who feel that they're marginalized, let's just say people of color, people of the gay community who scream that the government is oppressing them and they're taking away our rights. It's like, oh, yeah, but here, take my right to own an AR-15 and, oh, I have to pay thousands of dollars to be able to carry a gun and I can't carry it. Yeah, just just take my rights away. Take this. So I, I find it very ironic that that that, that part of the left is is the people who chant for more gun control when it adversely affects them. And then you have the extreme left, which are the anarchists, that are kind of the same way with the guns as we are, let's just say, on the right, but just in a very, and you know, they're anarchists. Like, we don't want that. So... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, um, but, yeah, it... it, it, it I, I think that it was the only way that... Because Oregon is... The thing that I don't think a lot of people understand about Oregon is... Outside of Portland and Eugene, Oregon's red. Oregon almost flipped red this election oh, that's cycle, That's like too. New York. Outside of New York City and its boroughs, New York is pretty red, and except for the major cities like Albany, Buffalo, and Rochester. Uh, New York yeah. is very red, but there's just not the population density yeah, to exactly. outvote 8 million-plus people in New York City. Exactly. So, okay, so you're in Oregon. You want to go buy a gun for hunting. You want to get back into hunting. Um, so what happens? So I go to a dealer and I'm like, hey, you know, I want I it was just, it was a I don't can't remember the model, but I wanted to buy a it was a Mossberg because I want to buy this twelve I want to buy the shotgun. And so at the time, because this was in the middle of COVID, and because the Oregon sheriffs have to conduct their own kind of background check on you, there when there's a massive wave of people buying, there's usually a little bit of a wait, but there's no mandatory waiting. So at the time, the FFL dealer that I was speaking with basically just told me, hey man. There's a massive backlog on these background checks, so I wouldn't doubt if you don't hear back for at least like a week. Oh, and so wow. I said, that's fine. Whatever. Ooh. And I, I think if I remember correctly, there there was like 100,000 pending background checks. Oh, my God. It was a massive gun, massive oh, yeah. gun wave. I remember that. Everyone was going out buying guns because they thought the world was ending. And then exactly. people <laughs> like you and me are like, well, maybe you should have gotten them beforehand. Well, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> And so, like, a week goes by, and I don't hear anything from this FFL dealer, so I go ahead and I give him a call, and I'm like, hey, man, I, you know, I, I placed the deposit for this shotgun, and I'm, I'm, I haven't heard back on this background check. What's going on? And he goes, oh, you were denied. Hmm. And so, immediately, I'm, I'm like, what the fuck? And I, I'm like, okay, well, why was I denied? He's like, well, they don't, they don't tell us. You have to we have no idea you have to go through this process through the fbi to figure out why you were denied and yeah. so i'm like okay so i figured it was a case of mistaken identity or something that happens so sometimes. yeah i've heard that before that's what i thought it was because yeah. I, I had just moved from new york to oregon i hadn't set up the ups address change i thought maybe there was some sort of you know they, maybe they thought there was something going on because okay. i'd moved from oregon to New York and then back to Oregon in a in, in a, like a three year time span. I thought there was just some sort of mistake, paperwork error. Exactly, and okay. so I I go back and I'm like, and I he's like, yeah, here's this number, 
And so he gives me this number, and I call the. I, I want to say it was some sort of. It was some sort of like FBI thing. I don't remember. It was. It was called like a. You get this transaction number, and then you, you go to the FBI's website. You put in this this transaction number. It's like and a then you call this or something. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. U-pin. Like that. And um, I I run up. I, I basically I'm like. Well, I don't know what's going on, and and the FBI d- doesn't call me back, doesn't get back to me at all. Mm. I I leave voice messages on their hotline that you can call if you're denied. I never get a call back. Yeah, I sent emails, never got emails back, and I at this point I was like, what the fuck? So I I went online and I was like, you know, maybe there's something on my on my criminal background that that, that maybe maybe there's a mistake. So then I I go on the FBI's website and I run a criminal background check on myself. You can and do that. Yeah, well, you can. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, and so I, I, I run a, a federal background check on me. At, th- at this point, by the way, I this is probably three or four months later. That I, I, st- I have no idea why I've been denied. And I, this is me trying to figure out. This is me calling within a, 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 I want a, almost a year span. This is where this spans mm-hmm. of me calling the FBI, trying to figure out why, getting stonewalled. I have no idea where it's coming from. And um, I run, so I, I run this FBI background check on myself. It comes back clear. Right. So I'm like, okay, it's not a federal crime. So then I run a, I call the local state police, and I'm like, can you guys run a background check on me? And they're like, nope, nothing on our end. Hmm. Okay. And so at this point, I'm like, I have no idea what the hell is going on. Why am I being denied? So right. it's about a year, almost a year at this point that I, I've been denied. I have no idea why I'm being denied, and I um. I get a letter from the FBI, and I had filled out this 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 like uh, you can appeal a denial on mm-hmm. the FBI's website. Yeah. And so I had I had filled one of these out, and it took them like fucking five <laughs> six months to get back yeah. to me. And I, I, you know within that time period, I'm calling people, I'm trying to figure out what's going on, and so. I get this big letter from the FBI that basically says, "Hi, yeah, so we received information from." Um, a specific agency stating that you were either adjudicated mentally ill or that you were involuntarily committed to a mental a mental institution. Right. And we uh, we were we're failing your background checks because um, you you are a federally prohibited person. Mm. I see and, here on your um. So I you had sent me your complaint that you had filed, and it says here that on um. September 12, 2022, plaintiff, you, was advised by the FBI the firearm purchase was denied by Nix because, according to their records, he has been, quote, adjudicated as a mental defective or who has been committed to a mental institution, quote, within the meaning of 18 U.S.C. 922, subsection G, subsection 4, and then that's the FBI letter um, in there. So that's the date, just the timeline for people who want to know. Yeah. And so I, I at that point, I was, I was taken aback. Mm-hmm. I, 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 again, I, I thought it was a mistake. Right. Because I was like, I wasn't involuntarily committed anywhere. I wasn't adjudicated mentally ill. I didn't go through a court process at any point. There was no judge. There was no hearing. Uh, I thought it was just another case of mistaken identity. So I fill out this big thing to, to the FBI basically saying, like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? I wasn't involuntarily committed. Right. And um, they don't get back to me. And so I call the hospital. I call the hospital that I was in, which is a um, – oh, what was it? It was a 
Northwell. Northwell. That... No, not Northwell. No. Oh, you had mentioned not. a while ago the name of the group that um, the Samaritan Samaritan Medical Center. Samaritan Medical Center. So I called Samaritan and I asked I I, I asked to speak with the ER uh, supervisor or whoever it is, and or whoever is in charge of all this crap. And I said I, I need to speak to them like right right now. And I I she answers the phone and I and I say hi. So I know I was a patient of yours in the ER. Um, over a year ago at that point and i can't purchase a firearm yeah and i don't live in the state of new york anymore i don't understand how this is affecting me federally like what the fuck did you tell them basically yeah you know but in a polite nice way is what I basically <laughs> in a non-crazy <laughs> way how did you, you yeah know, how, what did you tell these people how did this happen and they the lady you know she says she, she seems very solemn when she said this and she she said well, whenever anybody comes in here or for any sort of mental health reasons, we we have to report, we have to report this to the 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 the, uh, the New York Office of Nick's Appeals mm. and Safe Act. And so I go, well, who the hell are these people? Right. And the then she goes on act. to explain. Yeah, she goes on to explain the Safe Act and and all of this stuff. And I just and at that I, mean, I wasn't mad at her because I know you know she has nothing to do with this and. I mean, this is a woman who's like a supervisor. She wasn't there at my hospitalization. I'm not. I'm mad. I'm mad at. I'm not really mad at the. I'm not. I don't. I'm not mad at the hospital because they were just doing what they thought was best. Now, as for whoever reported this, that's where things get confusing, and we'll mm -hmm. get into that a little bit later. But um, so I, I I hang up the phone and I'm 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 like so I I'm federally prohibited from owning guns now. And at that point, I, um, I, I had my AR. I had my AR-15. Right. And right. I was like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do? I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, like, so I'm, I, 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 I'm in my house, and I'm like, so I'm committing a felony right now. Right. According to the FBI, that's, yeah, yeah. that's not good. According to, according to the FBI, I'm committing a felony right now. And so I, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want to get caught. I don't want to go to jail. So I take my AR and I go back to my grandpa and I don't tell him. I didn't tell him any about any of the, anything about this. So he yeah. knows now, obviously. But at this time, he knew nothing. So I, I, I didn't want him to know because my grandpa's a boomer and or a little bit older of a boomer. He's Gen X and he's not like that. You don't talk mental health with a guy who's in his seventies. They don't. They're not very receptive of that kind of thing. Right. Very different time from when they were exactly. Younger. And so I just said, hey, man, I need you to take this AR. I need you to hold it again, and I just want you to have it, and you safe keep it for me. Just I, I will come back for it eventually. And my grandpa's just like, all right, whatever. And he takes it. Right. And right. so that was kind of when, at this point, that would have been in, what, 2020, I think is what I have down on here, somewhere around then. And I got out April 15th. Yeah, so it would have been in 2020. So at that point, I was like, okay, well, it's time to figure out how to get my gun rights back. Right. And that's not – so I, I, I go on the New York office, the Safe Act office website, and they have this thing that's called a Certificate of Relief of Disabilities. Stupid, stupid fucking form. Probably. And the form, I've never seen it, but I can, I can imagine the, it's pretty dumb. The form requires you to give them all of your mental health records dating to the back to the date that you were born. It requires you to provide um, all of those records. A federal it provides requires you to give them a copy of your state 
state background checks for both any states that you ever resided in and uh, a back a federal background check. How would you even and, I'm just trying to think how would I even go about getting like I, I don't have any mental health background checks going back to when I was born, but like how would somebody even do that? Like how how would somebody even be able to get that information? You know, for me, it was easy because I saw a therapist in high school because I, I liked I loved I loved seeing therapists. I think everybody should see a fucking therapist. I saw a therapist in high school. It wasn't a, like, a social worker, same damn thing. And I saw her like every now and again. And so for me, it was through Oregon, Oregon insurance. So it was free. It's like or OHP is okay. what they call it. Oregon health program. So all of my medical records were under one lady. Oh, OK, That's now to your point, to your point. If you, if if I was in my 30s and this happened, and I had lived in multiple different states and had different providers, it'd be a fucking nightmare. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. Or what if you never had any? Would you just tell them that you didn't? That's I what mean, I'm guessing. How would they know? You, you know, how how would you be able to prove to them that you didn't? That you know, that's where I guess it gets kind of tricky, and that everyone's an individual circumstance. But you know, like, like for example, I'm 32. I, I've never thankfully had any brushes with mental health issues or had seen therapists or whatever so i mean if this was me uh, well, you know obviously i wouldn't be in this position but like let's just say aside from a, a one incident let's just say how would you would you just say no i've never you know and then would they just take your word for it <laughs> i mean that's that would be my guess well what i called multiple different lawyers at this point trying to figure out what i was supposed to do and one of okay. the lawyers i think it was tell him tell him tell him He's a Second Amendment lawyer in New York, I believe. I think he's suing the state right now. Um, I think I called him. It was could have been somebody else. And I, I, at first, I called a Texas lawyer because at this point, um, at this point, I'm over a year later. I'm in tech. I have I've moved from Oregon to Texas. Oh, that's good. And um, I so, so timeline wise, 2020, 2020, and 2021. I'm sorry. Yeah, 2020. In 2021, I was living in Oregon trying to figure out why I couldn't own any firearms. 2022, I moved to Dallas, and that's all the way leading to where we are now. So at this point, this is probably about the begin. This is the this is the beginning of 2022-ish, and um, I have called different lawyers, and they one of the lawyers who I believe was a New York-based lawyer told me. Why the fuck did you give them your medical records? <laughs> and I told him, I said, because that's what the form says. Yeah. yeah. And they don't, they, the, the SAFE Act office doesn't tell you that you should be getting a lawyer to do this. They don't tell you this. Of course not. So, so to me, I'm, and keep in mind that because I was prior service, because I was in the infantry, because I was around firearms, oh, and that form requires you to provide character witnesses. So I provided them like eight character witnesses, all people that spent time around guns with me, telling me that I'm not crazy. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I figured it was going to be a, 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 a open and closed case. Right. You know, like right. that they were going to go, well, of course, this guy's not unsafe to own guns. He was in the fucking infantry. Right. And he doesn't have a criminal background. I've never had any experience with, with encounter with law enforcement. So I figured it was going to be an open and closed case open and shut case so i figured i didn't need a lawyer right and so the lawyer basically said you know every lawyer that i spoke to except for my current lawyer told me i was fucked <sighs> never a good thing to hear yeah so i was pretty defeated at that point because you know as i stated earlier in the podcast i 
guns were was that was my hobby. It was my personality. It's what I did. I hunted. I I went hunting. I went shooting. I used to spend almost every other weekend. I was kicking out in the middle of the woods in Oregon, and I was shooting pop cans and targets. And I would go down to. I would go with friends. That's what I did. Mm-hmm. That was all I did as a kid. Was I, I I would load up the back of my truck with pallets. I'd go way out in the middle of the woods, and I'd have giant bonfires and, and, and shoot targets. Sounds fun. And if I wasn't doing that, I was hunting. If I wasn't hunting, I was camping, and I'd keep a firearm on me because the way I, I would camp, I, was, I would I would do dispersed camping. So I wouldn't camp on campsites. I'd just go kick out in the woods for a couple miles and find a spot. Yeah. So I'd keep a gun on me because I didn't know what was going to happen. Right. And that was what I did. That's, that's what I did from the, the moment I could possess and own a fucking firearm and – until I joined the, and then I joined the army. So it was my personality. It defeated me. It, 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 it was a crushing blow. I couldn't and imagine. At the time, if, I couldn't imagine if I was not legally able to possess firearms anywhere. That would be a, I, I, I wouldn't even know. That'd be a very exactly. depressing thing. And the the biggest thing that sucked the most was at the time I was preparing to go to the police academy. Hmm. And I, that was what I wanted to do. I got out of the infantry. I, I messed around with different careers. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I want to do something that's bigger than me. I want to work in a career that I can help people. Because at that point, I've been working at the hospital for a year. Right. And I was, you know, downtown Eugene is like downtown Portland. So if you can imagine working at a hospital and working, oh, picture working in a downtown emergency room in Portland as a security officer. That's yeah, what I was no. doing in Eugene. That, that's so I was rough. dealing with tweakers. I had a taser. I carried a fucking taser on me, man. I got knives pulled on me. I had, you know, I had knives pulled on me. I had people threaten my life on a daily basis. It didn't bug me at all. It's whatever, man. It's like it's whatever. Yeah. But my my point, my point is that at that point I was like, you know what? I I want to help people. I want to be in a position where I can. Mental health was very important to me, and I I thought that as a police officer, you know, I could, I especially in Eugene that has a lot of mental health problems. I figured that I could make a difference and I could help people and that That's I good. could kind of break break the stereotype that people have of cops. That's what I wanted to do. Oh, yeah. No, our, our so, law enforcement out there, they get a bad rap nowadays. And, of course, you know, there's bad apples in every bunch. But for the most part, you know, people need to realize that it's a very needed job in this country. Exactly. And I was physically preparing for the academy. I had, you know, I was, like, ready to sign paperwork to, and, I, and I was contacting different agencies. Yeah. And then that was when I, you know, that was that was when I was like, well, I guess – I there goes what I've been physically and mentally preparing for for the past almost two years. Right. So I had to completely change my my my. I was going to go to college for criminal justice. I had to change my degree. I had to I had to change my degree path. I had to figure out I had to figure out an entirely new path in life because the problem is is that. Oh wait! Before I say that. I went off on a little bit of a tangent there. So the certificate of relief of disabilities. Yes. I was talking a little bit about that, and I, that was my next step in the process. <laughs> so I I fill out this form. I give them all this bullshit information that they shouldn't need. Right. And at the time, I didn't I didn't know what was going to happen. And a a six or at this point, this was I had moved to Dallas, so this would have been in 2022, and. I had been waiting. The process says it's supposed to take six months. It took almost, it took about a year. And um, so I, I went to year knowing I couldn't own any guns, waiting for the government, the state of New York to, to deny or approve my appeal. And I get, a, I get a letter in the mail and it says they denied my appeal. 
and the basis of their denial was that uh, they claimed that a I this I said I said this to my to my high school therapist when I was a freshman. So this uh, this is over a decade almost a decade ago. I told my freshman high school therapist that I thought rapists and child molesters should be put to death. I said that to my. I said that to my. I said that to my psychiatrist, or my not my psychiatrist, my therapist. Therapist. Because I was reading a lot of things. I was reading The Punisher. I was fifteen or sixteen, <laughs> and I loved The Punisher comics. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, loved the the. I loved. The, I I thought that evil people like that don't deserve a chance in society, man. Mm-hmm. They're, they're those people don't deserve. They don't deserve a jail time. Oh, the other those people. <laughs> That's what I basically what I told my therapist, and. Because they had my entire medical record, they found that, and they used mm. that as part of my evidence. Again, this was almost a decade ago. And they – I see – right now, I see, a, I see a therapist like I always have. I just – again, I'm not mentally ill. I beat my depression. Good. But I see one because I enjoy – I just enjoy seeing a therapist. It's very right. therapeutic. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah, therapeutic, cathartic, uh, however people describe it. Yeah, no. And I see him like once a month just because I like having someone that I can just go and just let it all out and vent about. Because, you know, you don't want to – I, I mean, I have a girlfriend. I've been with her for three years. I love her to death. But you don't. If you're a, you really want. If you were had a significant other, would you really want them sitting there and venting about all stupid shit? And you don't. You don't want to be their emotional. You don't want to be emotional baggage to your significant other. That's the purpose of a therapist. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, that's what they get paid for. Exactly. It, it also kind of um, some things I talk about on the on the past of my show is breaking the stigma of mental health, especially when it comes to firearms possession, because. Just because somebody has mental health issues and they possess firearms doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to use that. It, it, there's all different kinds of mental health issues that people go with, whether it's just needing somebody to talk to or um, needing somebody to work out problems for them because they can't put the pieces together. It doesn't mean they're incompetent. It just, you know, somebody could see something in a different way that they cannot. Um, and then obviously there's uh, the psychiatric part, which involves medication, and that that ranges the gambit too. And um, you know, one thing that um, always kind of surprised me is how therapists and doctors say, oh, what you say to me is confidential, but then they write it down and then 10 years or 20, 15 years later, it comes up in a report and it's like now something I said when I was 15 has bearing on my life today. It, it, that that doesn't really sit well, you know. I, I was on a podcast with a guy named Jake whose last name is German and I can't pronounce it. But his name is Jake, and he is he hosts Walk the Talk America, and his podcast. He is a family psychiatrist, and his podcast specializes predominantly on firearm ownership and mental health awareness. Okay, that sounds good. And he's a great guy, awesome dude, awesome podcast. But he um, he he talks a little bit about what you just said, which is that you know, just because somebody is depressed doesn't mean they're going to commit suicide. Right. Just because somebody's sad doesn't mean they're going to commit suicide. And in my opinion, it's not the government's job to – this is going to be a little bit of a controversial statement, but I don't believe that it is the government's job to prevent or stop suicides. That is not the government's job. I, that, is, that is the people around them. I, that, is the, that, is, that is the people around them, your friends, your family, and that's not even their responsibility either because ultimately when somebody commits suicide, that is their decision. That is their choice. It is nobody else's. It has, has no bearing on anybody else. I do agree with that to a point. Um, the only reason, the, 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 the point that I agree to it to is if it could be stopped, um, if there's credible, like if somebody calls the police and says, 
hey, my husband's at home, he has a gun to his head. That would be yeah. the point at which the government could intervene and stop that, or try to, or intervene in some way. Um, just like I say that the government can't legislate morality, the government can't legislate what we do with our bodies, um, and it is a very touchy subject. I don't want people to go out there thinking that I endorse this, but um, just like you know, people say, my body, my choice, uh, unfortunately, 60% of all firearm deaths in America are suicides, and that is a very staggering number when you think about the total number of firearms deaths in this country. Um, you know, people argue... They say, well, limiting access to firearms generally for everyone will help prevent these suicides. I don't believe they will. Um, you know, it, and it's a very individualistic basis. And I, I've, I've talked, we've, I've talked about this a lot in the past. Um, but you know, I don't think that you could legislate punish everybody for the actions of individuals for what they choose to do to themselves. Just like people who use drugs, drugs are illegal. Yet, look at Portland. Yep, you know, and that's a very kind of messed up way to think about it, but you know, people are going to do what they're going to do regardless of if there's laws or legislation or or whatever. Well, so, I guess yeah, I so I do agree with you to a point that, you know, we can't government shouldn't be interfering or or stopping or uh, not interfering, but government shouldn't be legislating things like that, but I do feel like as a society we do need to step up and help one another better. I've said this on my my like pretty much every show, just like be a good person, do good onto others, be a good neighbor. Um, and that's how you could stop a lot of this nonsense gun violence that's out there. Well, I guess what I mean by the the government doesn't, the government shouldn't um, be in the business of, I guess a better way to put it is the government has a, in my opinion, and I consider myself very, very little government. I'm very, very much a constitutionalist. The government has a responsibility to protect its citizens. I believe that. And I do believe that in the case of what you said, that if somebody is actively threatening to commit suicide, that you know the police should be able to go in and stop it. They should be able to prevent things. But what I mean by that is the government – If the, 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 the problem with the government stepping in, and, and this is coming from somebody that's, that, that's – you know, very invested in currently. <laughs> yeah, the the problem with the government stepping in and trying to trying to prevent suicide or stop suicide is you don't stop it by by you don't stop it by limiting rights. You have it. The I guess a better way to put it is the government has a responsibility, maybe medically, in the sense that we should have a better mental health system in this country. The government, in my opinion easily could find the funds to find a way to have a mental health system that people can rely on in this country. Right. And I don't, a lot I of think people it's, say that, not even just mental health, but a better medical system in this country. Yes. Um, our medical system is severely broken in the sense of that people who really need the care aren't getting it. It's so cost prohibitive. There's so many people in the middle, insurance companies and doctors making money hand over fist off of people. Um, and, you know, that's one thing that other people say, well, what about this country who does it this way and this way? And, and you know, I say, I think it could be done in this country in a better way. And obviously, you know, there's a point to which it gets to socialized medicine, which I'm not really for, but there needs to definitely be some reform. And, you know, we send billions of dollars to people overseas and in other countries and who really have nothing to do with us. So why can't we use that money here? 
Um, but exactly. then everybody's misguided attempt of helping people is, oh, let's give them spaces where they could shoot up drugs safely because, you know, we don't want them out on the street shooting up drugs. Or let's give them away boxes of needles because we don't want them using dirty needles. It's like, no, let's not focus on that. That should be the least of priority of people in terms of mental or physical health. <laughs> you and know? The, the, the problem with, with mental health is that as somebody who's vested in the mental health community that takes it very seriously, that does a lot of research and talks to people that have been in situations like mine, not necessarily the gun thing, but like being depressed, um, the, the, the government, the reason I say the government has no role in trying to prevent suicide in that, in that way, in a direct way, is because the government, or when somebody gets to the point where they feel like they're going to kill themselves, you can't stop them. What has to happen is you have to stop them before they get to that point. Generally, statistically speaking, when somebody reaches a point where they're going to commit suicide, they reach out three times. Hmm. Three times. And it always gets missed. And it's because it's small. It's not big. It's small. Right. It could, it could be as something as simple as, you, you know, let's say you have a, you have a son. Or I, let's yes. say I had a son. I had a son. Let's say he was, you know, 16 or whatever. And my son was like, you know, well, I, just, I, just wish, I just wish I could go to sleep and never wake up. Mm. That is something that should be taken fucking seriously. Excuse my French, but in our society, we see those kinds of things and we ignore them. That is a form of reaching out. That is a, for, that is a form of a cry for help, but it's often ignored. And the problem with the government stepping in is they don't know you. They don't know why you got there. They don't know why you've got the point where you have a gun to the back of your head. Now, obviously, again, I agree with you that obviously if somebody's actively trying to commit suicide, somebody should step in and stop them. If that means police, that means police. But before they get to that point, the government has no reason to try to step in and, 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 and act like a, like, a, like a father figure to you. Right. If they don't know you. They don't know why you're there. They don't know the circumstances surrounding you. If we start allowing the government to do that, they're just going to see you as a number, and they're going to churn you out as fast as you can. Right. It's kind of like people argue with what's been going on with abortion lately. You know, mm -hmm. people say, hands off my body, my body, my choice. But then the people who wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade said it's not the government's place to legislate what goes on with your body. There shouldn't exactly. be constant. It's not, it, there shouldn't be this protected class of only your body. We're, we're the government is not in the business of that. They're to protect you, but not necessarily to dictate what you can and cannot do with your body. It's a common misconception. I think people, when they see oh Roe v. Wade overturned, it, it it's not that it's necessarily overturned. It's just that it's remanding it down to the states because it's none of the federal government's business. So yes. it's a statewide decision, just like marriage, just like health care, just like schooling, just like education. And, of course, obviously, states have different laws. And what I commonly tell people is like, oh, you're, you're pissed off at the way your state does that law? Huh. Welcome to New York gun laws. <laughs> um, not to get <laughs> exactly. too off topic with that, but, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a very similar civil-ish rights. I mean, what you do with your body, what you say, what you feel, what you do, you know, who can marry whom. It's a very... In individualized specific thing that um, many people feel are constitutional. Well, now it is constitutionally protected, but um, the same thing with a firearm. And like I said earlier, many of these people that feel marginalized don't treat the Second Amendment like maybe they should. Um, so with, with everything that's been going on lately with all this, everyone says, oh, it's mental health, it's mental health. But 
but everyone's just saying that it's a talking point. It's just a soundbite on the news, but it's something that you've lived and you're living and you're still dealing with this. So kind of circling back, getting back to the timeline of the story here, um, you try reaching out to the this this denial um, thing. You're doing that. You submit your mental health, and then they they determine that because of something you said when you were 15, somehow has bearing on your life now, and you are a prohibited person and not able to possess a firearm. So there's a little bit more. Okay. So they they that was one of the basis of the denials. Um, they used email correspondence that I had between the between that the office and myself. I, 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 every month, once a month, I, I emailed them and asked them, "What's the status of my gun rights?" Right. Well, you know, but just like you know, very polite and very you know civil. Yeah, following up my, on the the status of this this uh, inquiry exactly. I had sent, yeah. Because they don't communicate with you when you're going through this appeal process. There's zero communication, and I thought that was total bullshit because this is my constitutional rights. Right. So every month I emailed them once a month, very same fucking thing. I, I sent them the same thing. Right. You know, what is the status of my application? And they usually would just give me a canned response that they don't know, but I don't care. That's just some communication. It gives me, it lets me know that something's being done, that it's actually, that it's not just sitting in a file cabinet somewhere and nobody's looking at it. Well, they use that somehow as evidence to somehow prove that I'm a danger to society. That was part of their evidence. Um, they used I, my current, well, not right now, not my current psychiatrist, my current therapist, but my therapist right before I left for Texas. Um, I saw him. I saw him, and I one of the things that we we talked about is anger. I don't have I don't I don't have like crazy off the rail anger issues. I don't at all. But that's something that I talked to my therapist about. I just I talked to him about you know sometimes I get angry at things and I want to understand why. I want to understand how I can no longer I could stop being angry at certain things. I get angry and... at New York gun laws. Exactly. <laughs> I'm saying it here on on this show for anybody who's <laughs> listened and doesn't know. I get very angry at New York gun laws. I get very angry at the way we are treated here in terms of this. So just to make it publicly known, so this can come back and bite me <laughs> ten years later. But go on. I'm in, I'm in your boat now. We're riding the same boat. You know, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's, I it, don't mean to make light through. of it, but it's, it's just <laughs> Yo, ridiculous. No, good, it's man. just ridiculous what, what this is. I mean, you're telling me this story and I'm just like, you know, like I've, I've heard the ending of the story and I, I, the one thing that kind of surprises me is just like somebody who tries to get help and does things that society tells them they should do gets screwed over. And exactly. it's, it's just very, I mean, I hate to be cynical about it or, or try to laugh, but it's a very, it, it's just like, what, what do we do? What are we doing here? You know? Yep. I, you know, it's, it's, it's again, you know, if, if they would have actually really went through it, I don't think they went, my medical record Pate, it was over 200 pages long because I saw a therapist from freshman year of high school until I left for the, um, until I left for the army that spans over five years. Right. So that, that, that was large. I highly doubt they went through the whole thing. I fucking highly doubt it. But if they would have actually went through what the things that I said to my therapist, they would find that I never, at no point that I ever like sit there and try to say that I was going to kill anybody. I didn't say that I was, I, I would just, I would, I would literally talk to my therapist about, I don't know. Somebody said something to me at work that really pissed me off and I mm. wanted to tell them off, but I didn't. Yeah. 
And so I go to my therapist and I go, man, fuck this guy. You know, he said this to me. Right. I wanted to tell him to piss off. And, 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 you know, those are the things that you go to a therapist for. You go to vent. <laughs> you go to a therapist yeah. so you can talk about, you, do, you can vent and talk about bullshit. Yeah. That's what the purpose of a therapist is. And as a matter of fact, shouldn't it be a good sign that somebody that supposedly has anger issues is seeing a therapist? Supposedly. I think so. Uh, anyways, uh, so they, and, and so they use that as the basis to uh, deny me that's that because I see my therapist and I discuss anger issues that I somehow am a, I'm a, that I, that somehow that's, that's, that's the evidence that they used. And the thing about this letter that pisses me off the most, it's the thing that don't sound angry. Makes, don't sound angry. No, exactly. Don't sound angry. It's Stay the with thing that makes my, <laughs> exactly. Grinds my gears. It makes, it makes my blood boil. And it's, they state, I have the actual letter here. I'll actually drop it for you, so you can. So if you want to read it, you can mm -hmm. see how fucking insane it is. Um, where is it? Here it is. Here's a denial letter. This is the denial letter. There. Right, uh, a they the, a they over exaggerated the hospitalization. B they used this bullshit evidence. But at the very very end of the letter, this is what makes my blood boil with a burning passion. Is oh, so they before say, you read it, before you read it, um, I'm just gonna say it's from the Office of Nick's Appeals and Safe Act, um, and it is a very official letter. It is you know P.O. Box six six three two nine Albany, New York. Phone number. Um, and then it's sincerely signed Office of Nick's Appeals and Safe Act. So this is a legit letter here. I just needed people to see that or hear yeah. that. And at the uh, very, 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 very end, they basically try to say, um, what is it? They basically, they talk about how I, you know, I was diagnosed with depression. No shit. And that um, and they, they talk about at my anger and all that BS. They make it they make it sound like I'm crazy. That's the thing that pisses me off about this letter is if mm. you read it, there's a lot of very private information in there, so I'm not going to talk. I don't care if you see it. No, I'm not going to give out personal information, but I'm going to read this, this third to last paragraph here. It says, based on available information, it cannot be established that you have sufficiently resolved the problems that contributed to your involuntary commitment, nor that you have gained the skills and understanding necessary to manage symptoms appropriately and safely on an ongoing basis. After a thorough review and analysis of the material submitted and a subsequent investigation, OMH, I guess that's the Office of Mental Health, cannot conclude that your record and reputation are such that you will not be likely to act in a manner dangerous to public safety. Therefore, OMH has determined that the issuance of a certificate of relief from disabilities allowing you to purchase a firearm would be contrary to public interest. The application for a certificate of relief from disabilities is denied. Damn, that's a heavy paragraph. That is So that is the paragraph that makes my blood boil. I figured that would be. That's why I wanted to read it. <laughs> they Yikes. for one, this agency never interviewed me. Hmm. They never talked to me. They never spoke to me. The therapist and the psychiatrist that they were speaking about where they were talking about how I have depression and I'm angry all the time or whatever that they try to imply. Mm -hmm. Um that specific therapist, that psychiatrist was willing to write me a fucking letter stating that I am safe, I am sane, and that I am not a danger to the public. I asked him, I literally asked him to conduct a psychological evaluation on me because I wanted to have evidence to support that I'm not crazy. And he, he did it. He conducted a – he did, this is the therapist that had sent me see me for over a year. So this guy knows me. This isn't the therapist that I've seen for just a couple of months. Right. This is a guy that's known me for a year, that's known my hospitalization, 
And he was willing to go on record and say, my patient, Isaac Ritchie, is not a danger to society. He is not a danger to himself. He just comes to me to talk about anger, and maybe he's de- maybe he had some depression That's, that happens you know, from in the past. Right. And um, even my current therapist, he actually wrote a letter. He, he conducted a thorough psychological evaluation on me, and he wrote a two-page letter that was going to go to the office, this office, and it was, it was going to be placed into my lawsuit, but we'll get into that later, that um, basically states that, no, Isaac, there's no indications that Isaac is a danger to himself or others. There never has, and I highly doubt there ever will. The big thing here that and, I keep reading in this letter, it says that you were involuntarily admitted, which you've, you've said that you have not been. It, I guess it's a position of the state that they believe you were involuntarily admitted. Exactly. That's where things get really complicated and really stupid. Right. But before I get into that, I just want to say the reason that that paragraph that you read is so ridiculous is that I I only learned this through my lawyer, Amy Bellatoni. Oh, shout out to Amy. Amy. I love her. Yes. She is great. I really need to talk to her at some point. Maybe maybe you could facilitate that. I'm just a a no name nothing podcast that doesn't really have too much reach, but I would love to talk to her about a a bunch of things she's doing. Very humble woman. So she would probably be on here, but she is incredibly, incredibly busy. Yeah, I know that. She's suing so, everybody. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's, so she, she's great. I've played clips of her uh, when she, when I'll be, even before the Bruin act, uh, decision came out, when she was um, representing people from Suffolk County about um, some firearms that the county decided that were illegal. And we played some sound clips from her and just mic drop sound clips. It, it was great. I, I really like her. If you could send me those, I've been trying to find some of her cases. If you could send me those, that'd be great. Yeah, that was like <laughs> Jerry's Firearms uh, versus Suffolk County or something like that. It, it's an older episode we did, and we played some sound clips from from the court listener of um, of her giving arguments for things. It was an older episode. I'll have to see if I can find it for you. Um, yeah, she, um, the, the thing that she told me was she was able to find out how these investigate. A, she told me that, A, I am not the only person that's been involved in this. Wow. Multiple other people, multiple other soldiers have been involved in this wow. that she has represented in the past. B. She also told me that the agency, this office of mental health that conducted this certificate of relief, it consists of a lawyer. So who the fuck is this guy? Who is a, what does a lawyer know about mental health? For right. one? So why is he there? A judge? Same damn thing. Who the hell is he and why are they here? A social worker? That makes sense. Kind of. And a cop. I believe, I believe a cop. So no so, actual accredited doctor of nope. uh, psychology or psychiatry. Nope. Um, and they are not. Re- they are not required to interview you. They are not required to even speak to you. They are not required to conduct any sort of psychological evaluations on you. You are not required to provide psychological evaluations. So when I was submitting the paperwork, I didn't submit. I didn't bother to submit any sort of psychological write up from my current psychiatrist because they don't tell you that that, that you should do that. They don't say that. So, and I'm I'm sure that's done on purpose. Um, but so, this is a panel of people that only one of them are even barely qualified to speak on mental health issues. And now I might I it may I may be butchering the titles of these people, but it the purpose the point is that the four people that are on this panel really only one of them are are remotely qualified to be able to be speaking on mental health issues. And I don't understand how the world. The biggest thing is how can you determine somebody's current mental psych if you don't even speak to them? Right, right. You you need to talk to them because 
it's it's very unfortunate. Usually, unless they're a very high functioning sociopath, you might be able to determine by speaking with them if they are who they say they are, if they are true, if they've you know received any sort of help, redemption, anything like that. Um, it, it's just crazy too because I'm I'm just reading a little bit more of this letter here while I'm talking with you, and the the last sentence of this. Um, this paragraph here where it talks about in, um, in February 2016, it says, Records additionally document problems with lack of empathy, extensive interest in firearms, and themes of killing for justice. That's what you were talking about earlier when yeah. you had mentioned things like the Punisher and everything. And the, the thing that says extensive interest in firearms, it's like, is that is that a... Is that a contributing factor in the eyes of somebody who reviews these types of things? Like just because somebody's interested in firearms, extensively interested in firearms, does does that automatically give them a point on the crazy scale? Like, and you yeah. know, I say crazy in the, in a sense of like a because I don't really know a better word for it. But um, is this is this something that the state looks for, especially in New York, where it's like just because they have firearms, oh well, extensively interested in firearms, that's another point against them. Um, Biggest the other big thing about this letter is that they the way they word it is insane they they it, it's 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 for example in the thing that you said lack of empathy mm-hmm. i to give context to that if they would have actually read the, the medical record the full record they would have found out that the reason why i had a quote lack of empathy was because i was raised by parents that were in their like 60s and 70s so I didn't really have anybody that I could speak to my emotions about at the age of 15 and 16. Right. And I didn't know I didn't know why I felt the way I felt on certain things. I didn't know why I, you know, so I just this this is this is what I mean by the way that they word it is wild. Right. Because right. they they word it to make it seem like I'm absolutely crazy. The idea of like you said, the the, the extensive interest in firearms and you know, they don't they don't specifically stay in the themes of killing for justice that I was trying to that I was talking to my therapist about the Punisher and that I was saying that I think that murderers and rapists and child molesters should be put to death. Right. Does that mean I'm gonna go hunt them down and kill them like no, deer? No. 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 <laughs> but they word it that way because they want people who they want they want me to they want people to think that I'm crazy. You know, this to me, just to kind of interject some of my own um, person personality or my own personal feelings after talking with you about this, like um, it kind of it it it. Scare, I would imagine me and like minded other people, it would kind of scare somebody like me from if I ever needed help to go seek help to go talk to somebody because you know I, I've talked about it on the past in my show. I, I know I always say that, but we I, I cover a lot of issues like this, and um, one issue is pertaining to a large um, health group down where I am on Long Island in New York, um, Northwell Health, they are very involved in gun violence research. They trying to, they got grants to do gun violence research, and it's all in the guise of, you know, studying guns and, and violence and how it affects people and whatever. But, you know, the literature that we get at home, it's all, you know, um, gun control literature. Oh, be sure to lock up your guns and this, this, and this, which obviously you should. But, you know, they ask you, do you have guns in the home? It's like, well, what business of that is if I'm... If I'm going for if if my wife is signing paperwork with her OBGYN, which has happened, and they asked, well, "Do you have guns?" and I was like, "What does that have to do with an OBGYN?" You know, yeah, it's exactly. it's very okay. So you're now putting the stigma out there, and it's leading me to want to shy away from that. And you know, I feel like people like me, if if we if I needed any sort of mental health services, I feel I'd be very reluctant to. 
and I guess that kind of compiles uh, the problem where it's like people who want the help or need the help might not want to go for it or they might be reluctant to actually say how they truly feel. Um, and especially hearing and reading what you're going through and, you know, you're giving me all these documents and, and, and you know, personal information here is, and it's very legitimate. I'm reading it. Um, it, it just, it, it kind of, I would imagine scare a lot of people away. It's the, the, and that's, that's the biggest point about, about, about this. So to go back to, to go back to, you know, I, I get this denial letter right. and then I start, I start digging around. I start calling different lawyers and I, as I said earlier, every lawyer tells, tells me you're I'm fucked. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and so at a that point, time. I'm like, so I'm going to have to wait another year, and then they're probably going to deny me again. Right. And that's when I found Amy. Your savior, Amy, hopefully. <laughs> exactly. I found that was when I, I reached out to Amy, and that's when she kind of explained to me that, look, you're not the only person that's been through this. You're not the only soldier from Fort Drum that's been through this. There's a lot of people in situations like yours, and – um but my case is straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's very obvious that I'm not a danger to myself. There's other cases where, you know, maybe there's a little bit more complexities involved. Yeah, of course. Maybe this person had a criminal history that, and, and they were placed on a 939 hold. Maybe they showed up and they were fighting the cops and they were drunk on, and they were high on meth. Yeah, obviously case, very different circumstances. It's all very individualistic and you have to look yes. at it because we're all people. We're all different. You have to look at it. And that's one complaint that you had is that this panel that's supposed to be looking at this doesn't have a doctor on it who who looks at these, you know, and um, it's all very your, your case seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's and that's what Amy said to me was that you know, your case is very straightforward. You are clearly on a danger to yourself. You have a letter from your current psychiatrist stating that. But the biggest thing was that you were not involuntarily committed. Mm. And so that's when I started talking to her, and that was where we started forming the lawsuit. Was the we didn't want to get into um, we didn't want to get into the nitty-gritty of the mental health thing because that opens up a slippery slope. We don't want to allow the state of New York to try to determine my character. We don't want to bring any of that in because that opens up a can of worms that we don't want to open. We don't want to allow the judge to try to judge my my by my character. We don't want to allow him the opportunity to even do that. Right, because and the reason just because your character doesn't automatically like just because you're a bad person doesn't automatically mean you don't have a second amendment right. Character shouldn't have anything to do with constitutional rights. Exactly. And that's why in the lawsuit we don't talk about, you know, we don't we don't try to say whether or not I should have been hospitalized. We don't bring up the letters from my psychiatrist stating that I'm not a danger to anybody. We're not bringing any of that up because we don't want to even present the opportunity for the state to try to argue anything about this. This is purely policy. Right. And that's where the New York 939, that's where the complexities of 9.39 get into. And this is really interesting. So New York mental health law, there's a lot of statutes that cover in there. There's a crazy amount of information in there. And um, 9.39 in particular is very interesting. So 9.39 calls itself an emergency admissions for immediate observation, care, and treatment. That is what it legally defines itself in New York code. Okay. So, you know, if anybody wants to look into this, it's very simple. You literally can type in 9.39 New York mental health law and it'll pop up. So where things get really interesting is why is New York claiming 
that a emergency observation hold is involuntarily commitment. It's considered an involuntary commitment. And that's where things get really fucky. So I read through multiple different case laws in New York involving 9.39. This was because there was a lawsuit. There was a hearing that came out of New York very recently that pertained very close to my um, that, that came very, very close to talking about kind of what happened to me. Mm-hmm. A little bit different. The, the circumstances were a little bit different in this case. But if you go to the complaint yep. and you scroll down to, it's going to be, um, hold on one second. Let me find it. It's going to be, it's oh, pretty long. Let me make sure I find the right one. Let's see, let's see, let's see. I want to make sure I find this right because it's a really, really interesting suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no problem. Um, let me see. I think it's going to be farther up. Here it is. It's going to be on uh, page 13. Okay. It's going to be um, bearing fire. It's going to be uh, paragraph 65. Okay, 65. This was, this was a case for, um, I think it was Heinz versus Doe. And this was ha- this literally happened within the last couple of weeks. Yeah, and New York it says. Yeah, New York law. To to quote what it says here that New York law. You can read it if you want. You got yeah, a better it's, voice. It's uh, <laughs> excuse me, page thirteen, paragraph sixty-five. New York law has recognized a critical distinction between those who end their life in a rational state of mind and those who do so as a result of mental illness. Quote: Suicide involves the deliberate termination of one's existence while in the possession and enjoyment of his mental faculties. Self-slaughter by an insane man or a lunatic is not an act of suicide within the meaning of the law. That's Heinz vs. Doe, number 951-23, 2023. Um, Concluding that a suicidal ideation or attempt is not a mental illness per se, quoting uh, Breasted vs. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, I guess it's like an insurance case or something, implying that suicide by definition must must bear the indica of rationality suicide has long been understood as quote the act of an instance of taking one's own life voluntarily and intentionally emphasis supplied um and then it talks about you know case law and everything um, like early english colony law but basically from what i got of this is that just because somebody kills themselves with by suicide does not necessarily mean that they do not have their mental faculties, that they're not insane, that they are of sound body and mind, that they're not mentally defective. I mean, I might argue that if you if you ultimately kill yourself, that there is something, but this the way this distinguishes it, I do see their point in saying that, you know, if you cut your own arm off, yeah, self-slaughter, mutilation, that is something obviously wrong with you, but if you just decide to end your life, it's it could be under the basis of sane and rational thought. The biggest, and... The biggest case of this is I had a, a friend of mine very close to me commit suicide, and this was a long time ago. He wasn't depressed, didn't show signs. I can't say for sure, right? but he didn't show signs of depression. He was of sane mind, wasn't crazy at all. You would never have guessed that this guy was suicidal at all. But the reason he did it was because his girlfriend cheated on him. Hmm. Yeah, that that's... is a very good example of somebody who commits suicide 
But just because they have suicidal ideations or just because they commit suicide, that doesn't mean that that guy's crazy. It just means that to him, it was the end of the goddamn world. Right. He didn't know how to cope with what was going on. Right. You could be walked back off that ledge, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, I see um, the difference I, now with what this is kind of saying here. And I guess the reason I bring this law up is because the most important thing in the case of Hines versus Doe was New York makes a, makes a distinction. This is by the judges, by the court's ruling. It, it, New York made a ruling that states that suicidal ideation does not equate to mental illness. Hmm. Okay. So in my case, I was not. I, so this is where 939 gets really weird. And the reason I bring that up is because inside the Hines versus Doe case, you could find all kinds of different cases that it referenced. And I read through them. I read through them all, and what I learned was that the judges and the, the judges in New York have they don't they 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 are they are not defining nine point three nine as it should be. And what I mean by that is there are some cases there are some case law in New York that say that nine point three nine is an involuntary commitment. There are some cases in New York that say that it's not an involuntary commitment. There's some judges have said that it's not. Hmm. There are some cases in New York where the judge says that it's kind of an involuntary commitment, but it's not really an involuntary commitment. And there's multiple different cases that I read. There, I think it was six in total where the judges of New York were willy-nilly just deciding – just randomly using and deciding based on what they think. Whether or not the individual in the case that they were presiding over was involuntarily committed. But the problem with that is that that is not what the law says. The, nowhere, as a matter of fact, it's New York mental health law. I think it's 9.27. 9.27 is a, the New York mental health law that specifically dictates involuntary commitments. So if you are brought into a hospital and you are placed under a 9.27, you are being involuntarily committed. If you are placed on a 9.39, you are being placed on an observation hold. Okay. And then I think 9.21, there is another – there's another mental health law that specifically – 9.21, I was right. 9.21 is the voluntary or informal admissions. So by New York – sitting there by, by New York claiming – well, I guess a better way to put it is how can 9.39 be considered an involuntary commitment if New York state law has a specific statute that covers involuntary commitments? That's a separate statute than 9.39. you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, they, they make a separate distinction, and by that they should be following what, what each one says. Exactly. Because they have a separate distinction, they are not one of the same. They are, they are different statutes. Of complete different statutes. And 9.39, another and very important thing that Amy brings up in my lawsuit is that 9.39 specifically states that um, – here it is. This is subsection B of 9.39. Within 15 days of arrival at the hospital, if a determination is made that the person is not in need of involuntary care and treatment – he shall be discharged unless he agrees to remain as a voluntary or informal patient. If he is in need of involuntary care and treatment and does not agree to remain as such, he can be retained beyond the 15 days only if they go through the bullshit for making them – basically, it just says if they don't agree to stay as a voluntary patient, then you have to place them under 9.27. 
Okay. Which is the statute that covers involuntary commitments. Okay. So even 9.39 itself says that it's not an involuntary commitment because if somebody is brought into the hospital in a 9.39, why would you need to convert them to involuntary if they're already involuntary? So it sounds like it's, it sounds like to me that there's there's two different things contributing to the, the the whole screw up of here of what's been going on lately. Whatever happened with the hospital and how they um, sent this information to the Nick's denial system, then the Nick's denial system or this uh, certificate of disability relief a relief. You're cutting in and out a little bit. Oh, sorry. Um, must be the the connection. Um, so it sounds like there's two different things going on here that contribute to um, the overall mess up of what's been happening. It sounds like whatever happened at the hospital somehow um, it was reported wrong uh, to the Knicks system in New York State, and then later on, um, this panel on the certificate of disability relief is basically denying you because of what was originally done in the hospital with an with the quote 939 involuntary commission and they're also reading into your medical history and making a wrongful determination on that so it sounds like you're fighting on two different fronts here to to um to get this system um to fight the system where they're wrongly placing people on a 939 and to fight the system where they're wrongly um this this whole certificate of disability relief where it's a wrongful process in that yeah, that. And that's a good way to back. put. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, um, and to get your guns back, but that to me, it just sounds like, like I said, it's just there. There's two different. There's two different things that are going on where the state is mislabeling people who are, let's just say, involuntarily or voluntarily committed. They're mislabeling them under the wrong thing, and then this this agency of uh, disability relief where people contest to get their firearms back. It sounds like they're using that wrongly and then wrongly judging people based on whatever they view as, as quote, evidence in support of their barring you from owning firearms. It, it, yes. It's a very crazy system, it seems like, and you got a lot of, you know, a lot of fingers out in the water there. You know, there's you got this going on here, that going on there. Um, so... So now, with all of this being said, what what's going on now? So you filed, you filed this lawsuit, um, and it's. I'm I think you're cutting out just a tiny bit. I think it's because I think you got to speak a little louder. Oh, I think sorry, it's cutting sorry. out. I think it's cutting out of there. <laughs> oh boy. Um, so so now what I was what I was saying was now you're filed a lawsuit. You and Amy, Amy Bell and Tony has filed a lawsuit now and it's in the uh, United States District Court of Northern uh, United States District Court Northern District of New York um, where you filed it uh, a complaint for injunctive and declaratory relief and it's it's you Isaac Ritchie as the plaintiff against Anne Marie T Sullivan MD in her individual and official capacity New York State Office of Mental Health New York State Office of Nick's Appeals and Safe Act and in their individual capacities. Who is Anne-Marie T. Sullivan, MD? I believe she is the woman that is in charge of the OMH, of, or of the uh, mental health-like division. I believe that she is the, she's the commissioner of the New York Ment- Office of, of Mental Health. Okay. Oh, and I, so I the argument... Here. Yeah, Commissioner Sullivan uh, sued, in, uh, sued herein in her individual capacity... And her official capacity is the commissioner of the New York State Office of Mental Health. I didn't know they defined who the parties were later on. Oh, um, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so she is the top person at this office. Yes, and the things that the the things that we're suing for, and I I, I will say, uh, I want to go back to a little bit of what you said earlier, which yeah. was that this I didn't even want to blast this anywhere originally. What I was going to do was I was hoping that my that the certificate of relief would get approved, and then I could just move on with my life. Right. But after New York started this, it it became more than just getting my gun rights back. And what I mean by that is, I am very much a, I'm very passionate about mental health. I take it very seriously, and I I I want people that this this law prevents people 9.3 i mean however you want to call it whether you want to say it's it's 9.39's fault whether or not you want to say new york's fault whatever it is this process that we have that new york has i can't say we because it's just a new york thing the process that new york has prevents people from seeking help i know guys i know veterans i know guys that have ptsd i know guys that killed people overseas i know guys that watch their friends heads get blown off by sniper rifle fire watch their friends get blown up by ieds i know guys that are like that and these people one reason that's very commonly stated amongst these kinds of people is that they don't want to seek help because they don't want to get their gun rights taken away yeah that's a biggie i I completely understand that and if, if i had to go back in time and talk to myself i would not I would have said no to those police officers. I would have said no. I'm not going anywhere if I would have had knowledge that this was going to happen. And I don't know what would have happened. I right. don't know. I am – I do not disagree that I, I – I nowhere am I trying to say that I shouldn't have been in that hospital. I think it was, a, it was great for me. I learned a lot, and I think I needed to be there. But, but it's this system that – we have that New York has in place that just marginalizes people and, and, and it forces them to choose between whether or not they're going to seek mental health care or whether or not they're going to be allowed to own firearms, be, whether or not they're going to be – no, it's beyond that. Whether or not they're going to be allowed to protect themselves under the Constitution. Right. They're, you are, they're forcing them to choose between their mental health or their constitutional rights, and no one should have to make that choice. No, I agree with you. And that's you know at the very very uh, at the very very end of the lawsuit, which is going to be page twenty two, that basically tells everything that we are doing for things that we want to happen out of this lawsuit. I believe this is a precedent setting case. I really do. And if there's anything in there that uh, you think is really interesting, and for the audience, I mean, you can go ahead and read it out. Yeah, it would we, take a long time for you to read it all out. <laughs> well, when I when I post this when when the show airs, and um, I, I usually post the, a link to the the show on the Facebook page, and I usually try to put supporting documents um, up there as well, so um, I can put all this up there for people to read um, as well. Um, yeah, and this is all for anybody who's curious. This is all 
the uh, the complaint, the denial letters, private information. So you no, guys I won't put that up. That. No, just the complaint, but, public. But the complaint and the other the other things, that's all public information that you guys like. There's for anyone who's concerned for me about you know, oh, should you be should you be <laughs> posting this anywhere? Don't worry. Like this no. is you can literally look this up on the New York District Court. You yeah, no, only only things that are public I will I'll share. Uh, you you shared that other page with me so I could see what what actually they said about you but no just the, just the stuff the court filing and stuff just yeah. a complaint um don't and need to be giving out your address or anything, anything. exactly <laughs> no it's, doxing it's, here it's so much to me at this point it's so much more it is and i can see that the the biggest i would say the biggest thing about 9.39 and, and if we're going to go legal talk here the thing about 939 that is really interesting is that 9.39 uh, you, when you're placed under a 9.39 status, this is something that Amy in our talks very much mentions almost every time we speak. It's very, very important. And I believe she mentions it in, um, I believe she talks about Bruin in this. Um, yeah, she does a little bit, I saw. Let me see if I can find it. Um, she talks about Bruin and she mentions um, essentially that a 9.39 if you're placed on a, a 9.39 status you are alleged to be mentally ill so you are not confirmed it is not denied you are alleged to have a mental illness that's a very important distinction because right. i remained on a 9.39 status the entire time that i was in that hospital so on my discharge what that means is that the doctors psychiatrists or whatever whoever they are did not find sufficient enough evidence to dictate that I am a danger to myself or others or met or, or very mentally ill. And that is why they had to discharge me. Right. Because and So in a sense, I was only alleged to be mentally ill. It's much like criminal and, law where if you're, if you're alleged to have committed a crime, okay, prove it. And exactly. if you can't prove it, then you're not guilty of a crime. So it's kind of along the same lines as that. And where the hospital messed up, where the hospital very, very much completely messed up, and this is where, unfortunately, I've passed the statute of limitations to drag the hospital into this, but um, we don't really know. Unfort the thing that sucks is we don't know whether or not this is a big case of, of kind of what you said, which is that maybe this was all just a big misunderstanding and that the hospital said something wrong to the yeah. Office of Mixed Appeals. We don't know. We have no idea. But what we do know is that Amy doesn't. Amy doesn't believe that to be the case because she, the Samaritan medical, the medical system. This is systemic, is what she told me. Hmm. Was that there's multiple people that have been in my situations placed under nine point three nine, and then they just assume they're involuntarily committed. And it's happened to so many people that she doesn't think that it was a case of mistake because otherwise it would just be a very strange coincidence that, you know, the other hundred or so people that have been in my circumstances are. Um, you know, it'd be difficult to say there was a big coincidence right. when there's all these other people that have been affected. Yeah, by the way, Most that was important. page 12 um, talking about an, an individually involuntarily committed un under MHL 939 is still only alleged to have a mental illness. That was page 12 that we were talking exactly. about. Exactly. Okay. And we're, where the hospital, I think, violated New York code by placing me under a 9.39 was that under this is section 9.21 of uh, New York code. It specifically states that um, this is this is uh, subsection C of section nine point two one. 
a person requesting admission to a hospital who is suitable for admission on voluntary or informal status shall be admitted only on such a voluntary or informal status. The hospital shall, in such case, have the, dis the discretion to admit the person on either, on either such statuses, except that if the person specifically requests to be admitted as an informal status and is suitable, therefore. So what's important to that is I wasn't high. I wasn't drunk. I was completely sober and of sound mind when I went to that hospital. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe that the hospital violated New York code because they are legally bound to do every, essentially to do everything they can to place somebody on a voluntary as a voluntary patient when suitable right and at no point in my hospital that i like threatened to leave that i say that i was going to leave i i quite literally told them that i wanted to go under the floor so i don't understand that that's where a little bit of my confusion for the, for the for, from the hospital perspective comes from is i don't even know why they placed me on the hold in the first place but again you know i don't i don't I don't want to blame the hospital because I've worked in I've worked with the mentally ill inside these kinds of places and really the nurses and I like to believe that the nurses and the doctors that are there and my girlfriend who is you know works in hospitals is going to be a nurse I like to believe that these people genuinely want to help. Yeah. I like I mean it's totally possible that that that, that there's a rogue person in there that's just out there to take people's gun rights away. But Maybe. I just, I just, I, I find that hard to believe. Anything is really do. possible. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stories that are coming out now, especially people in who work in schools, for example, and how they want to not hire conservatives or how they want to push certain agendas and how they want to disregard um, procedure or public interest to push their own agenda. So it happens everywhere. That seems like kind of a far stretch, but it's not impossible. Um, yeah, and there's a there's a woman, and her name is Sandra Richardson, and she is a nurse who had a her gun rights. I think you would love her. She's very very passionate woman about this. She had her gun rights taken away in the very similar case as me, except worse. She was uh, she went to a hospital during COVID because she was she was she was, she is was I don't know if, I don't think she still is she was a nurse at the time this was probably two or three years ago and she went to a hospital because she was stressed out dealing with patients dying all the time and uh, she went because she was stressed out and she wanted um, anxiety medication so she went to the her her ER I don't believe it was hers and she all her story is out there so I could be butchering this but she goes to an ER and is like look I I I just need some anxiety medication like. I'm just, you know, this whole COVID thing is really just not doing well. The hospital falsely claimed that she came in, um, that they falsely claimed that she came in like completely mentally ill and the uh, reported to the office of the Safe Act office and the Safe Act office told the local sheriff's department to go take all her guns. Wow. So they called her, said, hey, we're taking all your guns because you, you somehow appeared to be mentally ill during your this hospitalization so i'm i'm coming to arrange like so i can come collect them all and so oh. she uh, she obliged let them have the guns wow. and then sued and got her guns back she got her gun rights back lucky but for now her. she's she's on multiple podcasts she's been on multiple podcasts now she's very passionate she's even writing a peer-reviewed research paper on the safe act and 9.39 and the mental health laws in general, and she and she actually has the exact numbers of people that have been placed on the list, like me. She has the exact numbers of the people that are there, and she has the exact numbers of people who are informed that their gun rights have been taken away. Newsflash: 
the majority of people are never informed. Yeah, kind of just like, like TSI, TSA no fly list. You don't know you're on until exactly. you try to book a ticket. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and she's she would probably you'd probably love to speak to her. She is a insane wealth of knowledge when it comes to this stuff. And she's still she's still out there, even though she has her gun rights back, she's still out there. She's good friends with Amy as well. So um she's just a I I mean I'll I can you know, you can you can figure out what you want to do, but she's a very, very, very intelligent woman and I yeah. wanted to bring her up because she knows so much about this stuff. Yeah, there's a um, lot of <laughs> there's a lot of specific information you need to know in order to kind of navigate through a lot of these um, these laws. I mean, you know, people say I know a lot about gun laws, but I don't know anything about mental health law because, <laughs> I, like I said, I've never had to deal with it much. But um, so with this, you uh, there's a lot of things in this complaint theory that you hope to accomplish. Um, you know, for example, here it says declaring that and in Declaring that and that inclusion in the state's reporting databases based on MHL 9.39 admission violates the Second and Fourteenth Amendments. Um, declaring that defendants' policies and procedures violate the Fourteenth Amendment right to due process. Declaring MHL 7.09 is constitutionally overbroad. It seems here that you're looking to fix this system which is a bigger thing. You know, you could just say, I just want my rights back, but it looks like here you're trying to fix the system on a much larger scale, which I think is, like you said, something that could be very precedent-setting for this. Um, yes. It, it just it seems like there's a lot that needs to be fixed based on the amount of um, <laughs> things in this uh, complaint here. But um, you... It's, you and I discussed in the past. This is a uh, we were talked on the phone, and you asked me. It was something about like talking about you know where do I stand in terms of how do I feel about the idea of you know if somebody's feeling super depressed, should should they should their guns be taken away or anything? Right. Like, where do I stand yeah. on, some, on on something like that? And I the reason I don't. I don't want I like you said there's a lot of change that I want done and I really honestly think that the premise behind these mental health laws is the premise behind them is is good you know like the premise that if somebody comes to the hospital and they and they want to go and you know they're threatening to commit suicide that there should be a system in place that allows them to you know be able to separate themselves from their firearms, whether or not that's federally, you know, federally uh, uh, managed is a is a different story. But you know, there's a there's a website that I know of that um, I can't even. I, I sent it to um, my my girlfriend because I thought she would find it really interesting. And it's a it's a website who. They're dedicated. They are an organization who's dedicated. Where if you're having a mental health crisis, you can call them, and they they're all they're all across the country. Is that you can store call my guns them. or um, yes, yeah, yes, I've heard of that's them. That's what it is. They um, awesome premise, man. That's awesome, and I, I I think that you know separating people from their firearms when they're going through a crisis is a smart decision. And I'll I tell think you that something it, though about that. Um, in mm. New York specifically, uh, for example, they are and uh, it's a network of FFLs that'll hold somebody's guns, right? 
Yeah. In New York, for example, they passed a law recently that was a, you need a permit, basically a pistol permit for a semi-automatic rifle. Um, if you give your gun to an FFL, that's not a gunsmith, but an FFL, in order to receive that gun back, you need to get this permit if you don't have one already. And especially where I live, it takes almost two years to get a permit. Um, just a little side note to that. A lot of people might not realize that to where if you give an FFL, if they log it in their books, technically it's not your gun anymore. And they would need to, you would need to do 4473 to get that gun back unless it's a gunsmith going for repair or whatever. That's like the legalese. So just so yeah. people are aware, if you live in a state like New York, because to possess a semi-automatic uh, rifle in New York, you don't need a permit, but to purchase one or to acquire a new one, you do. So people who have like like an SKS, for example, if you want to buy a new one right now and you don't have this permit, you have to apply for it like you do a pistol permit and it takes a year to two years to get. Um, so that could jam up some people. Um, it's a great service. Um, I, I really That's... like what they do, but just know that for people who might be listening in New York, that is a complication that you might have to overcome. Then if you apply for this permit, it's like getting a pistol permit, which the state has a lot of, well, Bruin tried to fix it, but they still have a lot of subjective discretion over, you know, somebody's character or references or whatever. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it gets into that. And some people might not, again, seek that help because of more obstacles and hurdles placed unnecessarily by the state. Um, and it's, it's a very unfortunate thing. And, you know, a lot of people like in my position, for example, have not bought firearms or haven't been able to because they don't have this permit. doesn't mean I'm not legally allowed to own one. It's just that I can't buy a new one because the state changed the laws and, you know, screwed a lot of people over. <laughs> so that is very, very important. To so know. speaking of something... what reminded me of that, just sorry to interrupt was Amy was on a case with the Suffolk County. Um, there was a gun shop just to kind of digress a little bit. Amy was on a case representing uh, 10 clients. You could ask her about it who they bought this certain gun from an FFL on Long Island. It was Jerry's Firearms. It was pretty notorious. Everybody heard about it on, in New York, basically. They were selling this, I don't know if you know what an other type firearm, it's like an AR with like a short barrel, pistol brace, vertical stock. It's not a rifle. It's not a pistol. It's not a shotgun. It falls into just a firearm category. At the time, nobody really knew if it was legal or not because the state wasn't coming out and saying it was or not. But basically, it was legal. We later found out the governor held one up on TV, and she said, this right now is legal to purchase in the state of New York. And everyone was like, oh, well, that answers our question. But then shortly after, they banned them. Um, so Amy was working a case where people bought this from this, this type of gun from a gun shop locally. Suffolk County said that they are illegal, that they're illegal assault weapons, and that they have to be surrendered. They sent a, a letter to people who bought them because Jerry's was raided by Suffolk and the ATF. It was it was a sham. It was a, It was... They were just going after him. I felt bad. I, I bashed the guy because of his practices during COVID. They jacked up prices on stuff. They they were shilling people like, oh, you need to buy this $2,000 AK because it's a Wasser and you can't get one anywhere else. And we have it. And so, you know, they were they were raking people over the coals for money. But in hindsight, I, you know, I used to blast them. But, but the state and the county really just used them as just a whipping post. But um, so Amy was representing these 10 people because – the, the county sent a letter to these people using their logbook saying, hey, you bought this gun from Jerry's. You need to give it to us. You need to surrender it as evidence or, you know, whatever in this. 
people, some people did and some people didn't. They retained Amy. Basically, she's saying, you know, they bought this legally. You know, why are you trying to take it from them? They don't want to come forward, you know. But what wound up happening was last week, Suffolk County sent a letter saying, okay, you can have your rifle back um, because, the, because the state changed the law and ultimately mooted Amy's case. Um, but they just said, oh, you could have your rifle back, but it needs to be made compliant and you need to possess this permit. And people are like, well, wait a minute. I bought this legally when I didn't have a permit and you guys got it, but it has to be transferred through an FFL. And a lot of people didn't like a lot of people saw that like, wait a minute, it has to go through an FFL. Why? I bought it. I'm legally allowed to own it. So with this now, with this whole store, my guns thing is if and you live in a state like New York, Unfortunately, it could come into an issue where now you'll need a permit or something to, to get your guns. But sorry for the, the little sidetrack, but it involved Amy and it involved a lot of the, the BS that well, it's, it's, to deal with. It's an, it's, an important, it's an important distinction, especially for people in New York. I mean, yes. it's just another barrier to care. That's yeah, what it is. It is. It's just another barrier to care. It's, it's, it's going to prevent people. Anyone who's, well, anyone who's aware, who's aware of that law is if they reach a point where they're in a crisis, which – it, I, I I genuinely think that at some point in everybody's life they're going to feel depressed about yes. something. Yes. And um, if you reach a point where you're depressed, it's it's just it's you're 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 going to think twice before you, you know what separating yourself yeah, from those. Yeah, it's it's a shame. And it really is. And it's it, sometimes it's important that that's something that should should be done. Um, as for you know, the case is we. For anyone, you know, I, I'll post the case number in the um, to you for you to be able to kind of anyone who wants to track it. Yeah, you can go to the New York Northern, the NDNY is what it's called on the website, and then you can, if you kind of scroll through their website, you can find and you can track it. Except it costs money to see pages, so anyone who actually wants to track the uh, anybody who actually wants to track the case should. Should should probably just. I'm going to be posting updates on Reddit. Okay, cool. So that way people don't have to try to. You know, it's like it's like ten sets a page, but that's annoying. You know, some <laughs> of these page, some of these lawsuits, like my my lawsuit's twenty six pages long. I mean, that adds up after a while. Yeah. yeah. Um. The it's it it was assigned to a uh. It it was I'm sorry it was um. I'm losing my train of thought here. Oh, okay. The con the initial conference was scheduled for um. Uh, I think it's let's see, three months from now. It's going to be uh, let's see, June or four months from now, June twenty sixth. Okay. At nine thirty a.m. in Albany, and it's been assigned to a magistrate judge by the name of Daniel J. Stewart. I know. I I tried digging to see if I could find any of his cases, and this this particular judge doesn't. I he's never had a firearms case before. Interesting. So all could of his cases thing are or a like bad thing. exactly. And he, but here's what's interesting. Most of his cases are like social security benefits and prisoner rights. But if you go into his bio and you look and you look into him, his bio says that he is a that he like went to college in Notre Dame, and that he teaches at an Albany college and he teaches constitutional law. Ooh, okay. And that this this particular judge, his specialty really is civil rights. Oh, that's good. So yeah, that's I'm hoping that's a good thing, but I couldn't I couldn't find anything on him in terms of you know sometimes if you look up judges you can kind of find like you can generally get yeah, an idea as to where they stand politically cases yeah things they say and I, I couldn't find anything on on this particular judge that could indicate whether or not he's has a a bias going into it kind of like uh, 
the big the big there was a big hearing on March twentieth in New York, yes. and there was a judge. The guy clearly fucking oh. had a bias. Yeah, I I read the follow ups on Reddit. It was ooh. it was insane. Yeah. I, I I was listening to it while I was at work, and and the the, the dude clearly had a bias. That, that guy sh- that judge should not have been presiding over that. Yeah. No, there's, there's you should not be. You cannot be politically or you cannot have a agenda going as a judge going into a preceded case. You're supposed to be – the whole purpose of being a judge is just you're supposed to be you know, even keel. Yeah, weighing the merits of the facts presented by both sides. Yeah, and it's supposed to be law. You're not, you're not, supposed, you're not supposed to be thinking about how you personally feel. You're supposed to how you personally feel about an issue. It's the legal shit that matters. Yep. What is the policy? What does the law say? I don't – as a judge, your opinion doesn't matter. What matters is the law, and that's what you should be talking about. That's what you should be focusing on. Not like there was a point in time in that in that in that particular uh, hearing where one of the attorneys was basically talking about how I guess in in the CCIA they banned owning being able to carry on public like on government property. Yeah, or some crazy shit like that. And he was talking about how they were talking about like a state park in New York that I'm not familiar oh, the one with up the name in the, of. Yeah, the Anirondack State Park. It's like the biggest yes. public lands that people go hiking and camping and everything. And it's like, well, you can't carry in public parks. That was part of the CCIA. And everyone's like, well, what about this big wilderness area with bears and whatever else? Like, I can't carry my concealed firearm on me for protection up there. It. That I I actually I listened to a lot of that like as it was going on like the debates I, I it it truly again it angered me I shake my fist in the air and but it's it's such a pile of crap <laughs> it really is it is a big pile of crap just because it I, was an I, activist court oh, man it, it's not only the court it's just all the people that passed it the 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 senators and the assembly people I I listened to the passing of the semi-automatic rifle permit bill um, as it was going on live. The the debates with, uh, actually, the guy who sponsored it was my, my senator, Senator Kevin Thomas, and it was just a clown show. It was just, it was he's like, because it's about saving lives. I'm like, it's not about saving lives. It's about nonsense. It's about your grandstanding. It's about your political activism that has that will unfortunately have real repercussions on people whose rights will be violated. Yeah, the the judge, the judge, when the attorney brought up that the Adirondack, the Adirondack, on Adirondack yeah. Park, he said, you know, kind of what you said, which was the whole, or the attorney, I'm sorry, not not the not the judge, you know, I'm I'm not allowed to own a firearm over here. I can't carry. Like, what if there's, you know, who knows what could happen in the middle of the woods? And uh, the the judge was like, well, we have we have park rangers for that. Yeah, and sure. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm and, I, and I'm thinking in my head, I'm like. That's your opinion, dude. That has nothing to do with that has nothing to do with case law. Why are you saying that? This the, that that's your opinion. If you as an individual feel safe in your park because there's cops around, great. But what if I don't? Hmm. You know, if that's that's your opinion. Yeah. And and then that's that's kind of my point about, you know, to, we went off on a little bit tangent, a little but bit, yeah. that guy it, it was wild. Anyone who's listening should Get to listen to that if you really want to, you know, boil <laughs> some water by boil, boil, you know, blood your yeah. boil your blood. Uh, anyways, Daniel J. Stewart conference is set for June of uh, uh, June twenty sixth of twenty twenty three. I haven't spoken to Amy since it's been filed yet, but okay. I will be speaking to her on Tuesday. So I'm not really sure what. I don't know if like at this point we just wait until June. 
or if something can happen in between. I don't really know. I have no idea. So I know that that is I know from what I've read on the mandatory media uh, the mandatory mediation uh, PDF that I sent you is kind of where it talks about uh, the cases and where it's going to be and stuff like that. And okay. It, um, it talks about the, when it was filed and stuff like that. I don't know what happens from there. I don't know if they can do anything in between. I, I, what I do know is that the state or these individuals have 60 days. I think it's like 60 or 90 days or something like that to respond so I don't know whether or not they set the that date for the initial council. I don't know if they set that to June because that's the minimum date. I don't know if anything can happen in between. Mm, I'm not sure. Not, and, I, and I won't. I won't know until until I until I talk to Amy. Okay. I just I just hope that this doesn't drag on and on and on. I just I mean it might <laughs> very it well might, might. It, yeah. And I really hope it doesn't because I just want my gun rights back. That's. I mean, like, there was a, there was a, on one of my Reddit posts, there was a guy who was talking about how, if the, if the state of New York saw this, this is a pretty open and shut case. I don't really see any kind of way for this judge to somehow say that I was involuntarily committed. I don't see how they can keep me on this list. I really don't. I really think all that needs to happen is this needs to go in front of a judge, and then the judge needs to just go, yeah, this is fucking insane, and and give me my gun rights back. But there was a redditor who was talking about, you know, well, what happens if they give if they just you know, here you go, here's your gun rights back. What then? You know, do I do I keep fighting? Do I go farther? Do I keep demanding the rest well, of the a, demands of the lawsuit? That's a personal choice. Yeah, that's a that's a personal and I, choice. And it's something I don't I don't know what I I don't know what I want to do. I think I want my gun rights back. That would Ultimately, be the least accepted outcome for you. Just exactly rights back. And if Amy says like, look, we could keep fighting this, but it, you know, it could go out for years and years and it could cost you X amount of money. I mean, you're fighting an endless supply of money on the other end with lawyers that, you know, it, it can get to a point where it might not be not worth it, but it might, it, it might not be good for you to fight it. It might exactly. just be like, hey, you know, we can try and activate some change. Let's try and talk to some legislators. Let's try and do this. But, you know, you personally, unless you get other people involved, it might not be worth it. But, you know, it, it might work, and I hope it does. Um, so with all that being said, we've, we've been talking for some amount of time here. Um, what, what can you kind of say in summation of this? You hope that everything works out. You hope that it some of this some of this stuff gets stricken down as unconstitutional or so that some change happens. Have you spoken to any um, state legislators, senators, uh, any anybody about any of this? I haven't. I've, I've sent some, in the past, I've sent some emails and some letters to some state legislatures okay. here in Texas, and most of them can't, obviously, can't right. do anything. I haven't thought about doing it in New York, but I think that now that you mention it, it might be something that I do. I've reached out to... In, in terms of, you know, whether or not I pursue past getting my gun rights back, the Second Amendment Foundation has reached out to me. Oh, good. And they said that they are, they may, they might, they have to see the lawsuit. Amy has to talk with them. Right. They said that they may file an amicus brief um, later on in my lawsuit if uh, it's something that they think that they can help with. And I think ultimately, when it comes to taking this farther than just getting my gun rights back, 
what's going to have to happen is the big dogs are going to have to come in. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm one, I'm one guy, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I don't, I don't even, I don't even know how I'm going to afford Amy in the first place. <laughs> it says right I don't here, even you know are how. the sole plaintiff, Isaac Ritchie. Yeah. Just the sole I don't plaintiff. even know. I don't even know how I'm going to afford. That's why I'm starting a GoFundMe at some point is that I don't, I don't even know how I'm going to afford Amy. I'm not, I'm, I'm a fucking college student, man. Right. <laughs> like I, I am a, I'm a disabled veteran. Great. But I'm, Really, I'm a 23-year-old college student. Like, I don't. I what I ultimately want is I want there to be change, and I and I and I hope. I've reached out to all of these Second Amendment organizations, and so far, the two A guys are the only ones that have reached out to me. And to me, uh, FPC will not take it. They are very, very clear that they will not touch anything mental health related. Okay. I don't know why, and that really disappoints me because I love their work. But it just might they, be somewhere where they have to draw the line. It just might be like yeah. that can get all sorts of into the woods, and they need to focus on maybe more constitutional issues. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm not, I'm not it, saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that might be their line, you know, where they have to yeah. stop. Exactly, that. and I don't, I don't, you know, I don't. And I don't fault any other of these organizations not reaching out to me. I'm just, it's just ultimately, Tenny. I mean, I will end up posting this on the different subreddits. And if there's anybody that's listening, that that's made it this far into the podcast, <laughs> really, there's. I just want my gun rights back. And if if the GoFundMe blows up, and you know, that's what I want. Right. That's really what I want. Is I want. I want to take this the long run. I want to there to be change. I want to be the person behind this, and I want to be the person charging forward, trying to change these bullshit laws that stop people from seeking help. But the only way that's going to happen is if this gets traction. Right. This, right. That's literally the only way that this is going to happen. Well, and I'm if hoping that, means... that the five people that listen to this podcast will, will <laughs> help spread the word. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The only way I can see it happening is, you know, I'm reaching out to I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be reaching out to news agencies, whether it be, you know, Fox News or any of the independent medias, you know, I'm reaching out to them. And really what this needs is this needs if 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 we want real change, this just has to get traction mm-hmm. and this has to get organizations to really jump on it. And I ultimately think that's that's what's going to determine whether or not I go farther. If no one wants to take up, no, no, nobody in the media wants to take this on and, and speak to me. If no big, you know, big boy podcast that has millions of views, like you know the Joe Rogan podcast or something, yep. you know, if they don't want to have me on, if it if it ends up that all of my all of my effort to blow this up goes to nothing, I'm not going to bother. But if it does get some traction and people start noticing this and people donate money or they you know if it's not donations it's talking about it and spreading the word then i'll you know i would consider going farther because at that point that means i could get the support right right well i hope that when this when you do have your your hearing in this in june that things hopefully will go your way um you know it's it's a big deal it's a big it's a lot of issues that you have to address and get tackled and ultimately i I do hope that at the bare minimum they restore your gun rights. That would be the best outcome at a bare minimum level. Um, so when uh, obviously as things progress, um, if you want to come back on the show and talk more about it as things go on, we'd love to have you and to keep up, keep in touch. Um, 
you know, with, with updates and with things that are going on. I'd, like I said, I'd love to talk to Amy at some point. Maybe we can facilitate that if she'll just talk to me for like 20 minutes for free. <laughs> I know she's busy, yep, yep. <laughs> but I, I can't afford to pay an attorney to sit here and shoot the shit for a few hours. Um, yep, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I do wish you much luck in all of this. It is a very tough issue you're tackling, and I hope that anybody out there who is listening, who is dealing with mental health issues, don't have to doesn't have to go through what you went through just to get help. Um, I don't know if there are other resources out there available for people who are worried about their firearms being taken away if they seek mental help. I, I have no idea. Um, but I do encourage people to talk to one another. And like you said, you know, talk to somebody, open up. Um, it might not have to be a medical professional. It could be a relative, a neighbor, uh, you know, a friend. Um, just that way signs aren't ignored and you don't say, oh, I wish I did something more or you know, I wish I could have done something more, but, um, and like I always tell people, just be, just be a good person to one another and just, uh, you know, just exactly be good. Um, so yeah, this, uh, this was a really long conversation. I hope people are still listening and I, I thank people for sticking it out. Um, but definitely Isaac, I'd love to talk to you again. I'd love to have you on and, uh, we'll, we'll keep updating people as, as this progresses. Yeah, for anyone who wants to keep updates outside the podcast, they can they can find me on the various different subreddits that I post um, the updates on, and I mean you can you can find my Reddit if you really want to follow me. But I I should post a lot, so you're I mean there's gonna be a lot of there's gonna be a lot of in betweens of me actually posting an updates and me talking shit to some liberal on some weird subreddit. So, so what, what, it's gonna be a wide variety. Well, let me ask you this: what what subreddits do you post about the gun case specifically on? Uh, New York let guns, me... I would assume. Uh, let me make sure I get it all right here so I can pull that up. It's going to be um, – it's going to be um, our firearms, New York guns, gun politics, and pro-gun. Okay. Those are so the four subreddits that I've been updating. If you don't want to see shit posting, go to those. And if you see something about this case, definitely share it. Tell some people about it. And uh, let's get some traction here for Isaac because he needs some help with this. Um so I think that's going to be it for today. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you to uh, Isaac here for coming on the show. And most importantly, everyone, stay safe.